understand my struggle. It's nothing but life though, you know? Everybody go up and down like a seesaw, you know? Pain kick in on everybody. This is the life of two true hustlers. It's not my story, it's theirs. But here's my family that can tell their story the best. My name is Cindy and I'm 35 years old. And Gino was like a brother to me and Rodney is my brother. My name is Steve. I'm 37 years old. And Gino was, he was another brother that I grew up with. And my brother Rodney, uh, he was my brother, my older brother, our mentor. He led us, you know, to do the right things in life. My name's Shannon, I'm 31 years old. And I'm like a sister to Gino and Rodney's my brother-in-law. Gino and Ron's relationship was like any brothers, arguing, then they love each other. They've known each other for about 24 years. We used to go clubbing all the time, to floss big time. Walk up in the club, we'd be the, like the latest people walking in. we roll up in a Mercedes Benz. we get all the top services, we get the front line, the line's like all the way around the back. Well, we step up into the club and they just let us right in. Well, they had it like that. One of the stories that I can think of is when we were doing a video for their Eyes on the Prize CD, and we were right by Two Rock, and we were in the parking lot. They were doing donuts while everyone was rapping. One of my incidents with Gino, it was New Year's Eve. I was wasted, <laughs> throwing up in the bathroom, and he comes in the bathroom hollering, do you want another drink? Do you want another drink? That's what you get for drinking. Why are you drinking so much? Their purpose of hustling was just to make it a better life for our kids and their family. Whenever holidays and my birthday came around, my uncle Gino always gave me everything I wanted. He would treat me like one of the sons. He was like my second dad. He was always there for me. If I needed something, he would have got it for me. We would always meet up on 24th Street because that was like the hangout back in the days. And then it escalated to going out and hustling. And then after that, they just picked up, you know, soldiers to help them out in their hustle. I did three years in prison. I stashed one of his things, you know, and then I got arrested for it. And, you know, they were always there for me. They kept the money on my books and, you know, took care of my family while I was in. Both of them didn't grow up having it easy. Everybody was on the struggle, so they were just trying to better their families and better their lives. Them hustling affected our family in a good way and a bad way because we were always scared for them getting caught. But in the good way, they were always there for us and they always helped anyone that needed help out. If they never started hustling, it probably would have been harder for all of us and all the kids wouldn't have everything they have today. There wasn't more love because there was more money. And I say this because I know that both of them are very family oriented. And with Gino being gone, it's like, you know, you, you just lose a best friend, a brother. Gino going to jail really affected his family. He was always around the family, never missed functions. I know that he regrets a lot of the things that he did because he's missing out on his children growing up. Where Gino's at now, I know that he wished he didn't do what he did. The advice I would give people out on the street is it's all right to hustle, but you know, 
Hustle in a legal way, not in that slanging dope and all that. Stay in school. Education is better than street education. After Rodney passed away, our family became a lot closer to each other. And I know that it made everybody else think about the choices that he made and the consequences and that we don't want our children to go that route. He was the rock to our family. He made sure everybody was taken care of. And we miss him. Dear Vanessa, well anyways, here I am writing you like you asked me to. Before I start, tell your mom and brothers that I love them just like I love you. You asked me a question, what would I tell the young kids about the streets? I would tell them that there are only two things that you will get. One is death and the other is prison. Everybody knows what death is, so I'm going to tell you what prison life is like. Do you really want to know what prison is like? I don't mean the bars, bunks, or bathrooms, but the actual life inside. It's a place full of pain, hate, and treachery, all mixed together and simmering in the slow hellfire of, the, of stress, fear, and longing. It's a place where grown men silently cry in their sleep and desperately fight to hold on to their sanity, hopes, and dreams. Prison is a cold, harsh reality that for many people holds special terrors. Perhaps the most important prison life lesson is that, all too often, kindness can be mistaken for weakness. Prison is a place where mind games are endless and screwing with the minds and emotions of others is a sport. In short, it's hell, a place of torment, a madhouse where nothing makes sense, a void where nothing matters except survival and freedom. So if I were any kid out there on the street, I would stop what I'm doing, go back to school or get a job, because I'm in prison now because of the streets, and now my life is a living hell. Signed, Jamie. My daddy is the best in the whole wide world. I hope you enjoyed my movie. This is kind of nerve-wracking for me, so just bear with me. During this whole process of making this movie and just having enough courage to come up here and talk, really is taken a lot from me. And the real inspiration throughout all this would be my dad. During my summer internship with Changing the Odds, I got the opportunity to create my own video and edit with Final Cut Pro. Really what inspired this video was just how it changed me as a person. I used to be rebellious. I wasn't doing things I should have been doing while my dad first went to jail. And it changed me as a person, and I thank everybody for helping me through everything I've been through. During the process of making this video, it was hard for my family to open up because it's really personal how my uncle died and my dad going to jail really affected our family. I guess really the closing message to all of this would be that through everything people go through, family, support, and love, is really the main key. Next, I'll be reading a letter from Senator Barack Obama that he wrote specifically for this program. Dear friends, I appreciate the opportunity to welcome all of you to the Safe Communities Reentry Council's third annual reentry summit. The Office of the San Francisco Public Defender is doing innovative work to reduce recidivism, and I commend all of you for the vital work you do to make your city safer. You don't have to be told that America's urban communities are facing incarceration and post-incarceration crisis. Up to two-thirds of the 650,000 prisoners released every year are rearrested within three years. Nearly two million children have a parent in a correctional facility. 
It is simply unacceptable to keep ignoring this crisis in American families and communities. In the U.S. Senate, I have worked to provide job training, substance abuse, and mental health counseling, and employment opportunities to ex-offenders. As president, I will create a prison-to-work incentive program modeled on the successful welfare-to-work partnership to create ties between employers and third-party agencies that provide training and support services to ex-offenders and to improve ex-offender employment and job retention rates. I will also work to reform correctional systems and prevent former inmates from finding and maintaining employment. Together, we can identify the most innovative local anti-crime programs and expand them. We can continue this successful weed and seed approach to weed out negative influences from at-risk communities and seed them with vital social services and residence control over their future. I'm running for president to bring new hope and concrete solutions to people and communities that need them. But I can't do it alone, so I hope you'll join our nationwide movement for change. Together we can build a new America. Sincerely, Barack Obama. Good morning. I'm Kamala Harris. I'm the District Attorney of San Francisco, and I want to thank you all for being here today. And I'd like to publicly thank Public Defender Jeff Adachi for consistently being dedicated to reentry and hosting this conference. He has expressed and shown great leadership, and I applaud and thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Wasn't Vanessa fantastic? She was just wonderful. Let's give her applause. She was backstage talking about, um, you know, her concern about coming out here and, and speaking before a large audience. But, you know, you can see from the work that she has done in our program Changing the Odds um, that she's got a lot to say, and she knows how to say it, and she does it well. When um, we started Changing the Odds in the DA's office in about four years ago, and it was focused on looking at young first-time offenders and just figuring out a way to get them a summer job, just like we would any of our children or young people. And so what happened is basically uh, I took a meeting downtown with some of our um, leaders in the business community and said, you know, we want to do something about getting these young people back into the system and, and get them skills. And there were a couple of businesses, um, including Nordstrom and um, others, that said, okay, well, let's sit down and talk about how we can work together. So what we did is we had people from the business community agree to create a stipend that would pay to get these young people for the first part of the summer into job training skills, into soft skill uh, training, teaching them those basic things that we all need to know if we're going to be successful in a workplace. People look at their watch when you walk in the door. They will make assumptions about your character, so be on time. Teaching things like, 
You get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and, and shower and get changed and take two buses to work on Monday. You do the same thing on Tuesday and then Wednesday. You look in your closet and you've got the same clothes that you wore Monday and Tuesday. Nobody cares. Put those clothes on and go to work. Teaching young people what they need to know to survive in the workplace because they've got the talent, they've got the skill, but they need to also have the confidence. And so that's what we did for the first part of the summer with Changing the Odds. And then we got them working. And this summer in particular, Sandy Close and New American Media decided that they would partner with us, and it was an incredible partnership, and bring the young people into their offices and taught them how to use video cameras, taught them how to use the Internet to edit and to access research and data that would help inform their production. And it was an incredible thing to see because it was about giving these young people not only the confidence and a skill that is an employable skill, but also giving them the ability to express themselves. Reentry is about saying we have to be smarter in the way we are going to achieve public safety in this country. We cannot just talk about, well, are you soft on crime or are you tough on crime? We have to be smart on crime. And that means recognizing that people make mistakes and they should be held accountable for those mistakes. Reentry is not about giving somebody a pass or a free ride or letting them get over. It is about accountability. And once that person has been accountable for the crime they committed, we should, as a civil society, be prepared to create an environment where they can earn back their place, where they can be productive, where they can show us and themselves and their families everything they can do to help be a part of a community. Reentry is about just that. It's about recognizing that in California, for example, we have the worst statistics. We send people to prison. Every year we release 120,000 because they have served their time. And within three years of their release, 70% recidivate. This is unacceptable. If any other institution were being judged by that number, it would be shut down. What we have to do if we are going to be smarter as law enforcement and as a civil community around creating and increasing public safety, we have to be focused on those numbers, on recidivism as a very big threat, frankly, to public safety. And we've got to figure out how we're going to reduce the likelihood of a former offender returning into the system. And that means re-entering them in a way they can be productive. And that means seeing them and their lives like Vanessa has shown us, not through a plate glass window, but through a prism. Understanding that that individual has a family, children, they have to go somewhere at night after whatever they've done during the day, and that means they need housing. It means recognizing the skills need to be developed, but the talent and the brain is there. And essential to that, and Jeff, I want to thank you for the theme this year, essential to that is that we have to be able to find and give them employment and an opportunity to excel and grow in that place of employment. And so at the heart of reentry, I believe, is not only a commitment to public safety, 
not only a commitment to allowing people to earn back their right to be seen as equal, but it is also at its heart about public-private partnerships and our business community, our small business community, joining together shoulder to shoulder with community-based organizations, joining together shoulder to shoulder with those of us in the criminal justice system so that we can reduce these numbers and achieve public safety and be what I know we can be when we want to be smart on crime. Thank you all. Good morning. I'm Ross Mercurimi. I'm supervisor here in San Francisco in our beloved District 5, which encompasses the Western Edition, also known as the Fillmore, Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco. I've been working and delighted to be working very closely with District Attorney Kamala Harris, Public Defender Jeff Adachi, Sheriff Michael Hennessy, and a whole fleet and network of wonderful uh, community-based organizations and nonprofits throughout the city and the Bay Area because we realize we have a crisis here in San Francisco, we have a crisis here in California, and we have a crisis here in the United States. When in fact that we are certainly agitated and decrying the fact that we have a very high violent crime rate, homicide rate in San Francisco as well as in the Bay Area, and we disconnect the very reality that up to 70 to 75 percent of those who are committing those crimes are people who have had repeat offenses before, and yet that we apply little attention or little services or little focus in the kind of collective way which would be strategic and productive, now we know we have a problem. So for the last two years, in an ad hoc way, kind of on the side, both the district attorney's office and the public defender, myself and the sheriff and city hall, had formed these consuls, known as the reentry consul and the safe reentries consul. And our aim was to try to marshal together all the resources that are out there in a very decentralized way, sort of divorced and independent from each other, not well coordinated, but those organizations that are struggling onto themselves to try to survive each day because of the limited dollars that they get but at least try to make their impact and their impact felt on behalf of those who are coming out of the system and those who are looking to rehabilitate their lives and to do so effectively so that they don't repeat their offenses. I come here that much more motivated when I hear how this nation right now is completely, completely in turbulence because of the fact that we're just about ready to bail out Wall Street with a $700 billion check and if we're able to commit to those kind of resources to bail out Wall Street, it's $700 billion without even reforming the fact that corporate executives are still going to get paid well over $500 million in order to continue the business that they have done that has helped us arrive at this horrible position, then that just tells me that those resources still exist 
as we know in our gut, in our minds, that we should campaign that much more, that much more aggressively so that we also can bail out the kind of misguided prison system, the kind of reentry system that we would like, and certainly invest in the future of everybody that we know that can make this country strong, our state strong, and our city smart. But we don't do that. We don't do that yet. And this is why we're congregated here today. It's because we're spotlighting the very need to reorient the kind of resources that instead of us building more prisons and certainly seeing the prison industry complex exceed in the budget of that what we invest in public education here in California. And then we see over the last 15 years that the prison population in California grows by four times, then we haven't made the sound investment. So at least here in San Francisco, by us coming together in our own sort of individual way, who cares very much about this issue, who cares very much, I think, about how we can link up and apply the kind of expertise and experience that we all may have within our own orbits and then begin to expand our orbit so that we make that kind of assertive assault in the most commonsensical way possible. And I mean ways that we're not hearing spoken even from all the presidential candidates right now in a way that I think that needs to be said, or even in the state where we would expect, I think, legislators to speak up and be more assertive about this. We'll do it here locally. And as with your support and with your um, I think just enthusiasm that we're able, I think, to deliver on the kind of results that we're looking for. And what I mean by that is pretty simple. It's nothing that novel, really nothing that original. You all know what it is. And the fact is, is that the best antidote in order to turn this around, especially somebody who has served time and certainly doesn't want to repeat their offense again, is we should have a healthy infrastructure of job skill training and job placement. And I don't mean just the construction jobs where you're waving the flag or flipping the burger jobs. I mean where we actually have the kind of relationships with the private sector so that they are not intimidated and they don't cower under the table because somebody has a record and they're fearful of not hiring somebody. I mean that it's time for local government to step up and to incentivize to the business community and the private sector that employers should hire somebody who has done time, and create that kind of relationship and that kind of agreement where both can win, where that you're on a career track, where people are seeking you know, an atmosphere in a society of livability, prevailing wage, and where you know that there's some level of permanence in the most positive way. That's what we're here for. And this is important because if any company wants to come to San Francisco and they want the prestige of what is probably one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the United States and one of the most majestic cities on this planet, then in return, as a legislator, I show well damn demand that the fact is they hire our people and they hire our people who has also served time. And it's time that we be that much more assertive in declaring our expectations that this isn't just a footnote. This isn't just something where we give a little bit of CBO money over here or a little bit of CBO money over here or make it the public defender problem or sheriff or DA problem or a mayoral board of supervisors problem. This is a societal issue, and this is one that requires this kind of attention, which is why summits like this are that much more critical. It obligates our commitment in order to be that much more, I think, forceful in our demand. 
that if we want to try to lower the crime rate, if we want to try to tackle poverty, if we want to, you know, certainly address the impoverishment that has kept good communities down in this area, in our city and in cities around, then concurrently we are also incumbent of tackling the very issues at root here that keeps those communities down and those communities in distress. This is not just a one community problem, it is a whole society problem. And we fail constantly in California when we continue to see the prison population, the parolees, adult and juvenile, continue to stagger in the numbers up and the recycling door of where they keep going in and out of the system and not seeing that level of performance or efficacy of where people are beating that system so that they're moving forward with their lives. That's what's important about here today. The fact is, is that there's something rare about uh, the, the very act of when you see all these different elected officials and, and seniors, uh, officials and bureaucrats and leaders of nonprofits come together to try to commit this very vision and focus. But this is more than just about a reentry summit, and this is more than just about a piece of legislation or even any kind of rhetoric that we share here today. This is about a campaign. It's not on the ballot in November. It's not really a campaign that you know that it has an end date. But that end date is always staring us in the face because we're under the clock. As a legislator, it would be a dereliction of my duty if we didn't confront the very reasons that distress us back at City Hall. Just in the same way that I'll speak out to any misguided war abroad where I think we're wasting our resources sending dollars abroad because, because it, the case was not justified and the dollars that are siphoned away to something that I frankly don't believe in subverts our ability from using those dollars because of unmet needs here at home. Those kind of very needs that would go towards this population as well. And so with that same level of thinking and really with that same level of ethos, it's important to understand that in California, where I feel like I have maybe just a little bit more, I think, influence, or I'd like to believe so, at least in our state, in our locality here, if misguided decisions are being made and dollars are being rerouted into place where it's certainly not productive or effective, then with you here today, we stand tall and we commit to the idea that it's time that we demand where we reorient our kind of priorities in a San Francisco way, in a smart forward-thinking way, just the reputation of what our city enjoys in the rest of this country, but to really live up to that reputation so that we are then seeing the reduction of what the recidivism rate is, where we're seeing the positive self-esteem rise in communities that have been chronically distressed, where we see instead of people have to travel miles to get the kind of treatment that they would like, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's mental health, whether it's to rehabilitate one who is reintegrating back into their family, for domestic issues, or whether it's just jobs in itself. It's time we get smart about this. It's time we laser those resources into the communities themselves. It's time that we tailor in absolutely, strategically, specifically focus, whether it's in Visitation Valley or Sunnydale, Baby Hunters Point, the Fillmore, Mission Tenderloin, anywhere in itself where there is a population that demands the need, then it is us together that should demand that it be delivered. And that's exactly why we're here today. It's not about what 
in if somebody did time. That's what I care less about. It's about now what you do with your time moving forward. And it's incumbent upon us to work together, and I mean work together, in this ongoing campaign where we have those goals and objectives, and we don't rest until we deliver upon them. I congratulate you for being here today and for the third annual reentry summit. I'm proud to be part of this since the inception, and I'm really proud to be working with my esteemed colleagues in helping us get to this particular place. I feel like we're turning a corner, but that turned corner always makes me feel like I'm just on the edge of my seat, feeling like we can slip backwards, just you know, slip completely back and lose the progress we've attained. And that makes me feel really uneasy. But here with you today, I feel emboldened, and I feel committed, and I feel that I can go back to City Hall and talk to any legislator and the mayor and anybody to say that we're on the side of right, and that this is the agenda that we cannot waver from. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jeff Adachi. I'm your humble public defender here today. And let me say that I, I am absolutely honored uh, to be here with you in this room. And thank you so much for being here. And welcome to Reentry Works. Why are we here? Why are we here? We're here to celebrate new beginnings. We're here to rejoice in the power of redemption. We're here to come together as a community, as a family, to look at how we can stop the cycle of incarceration that has plagued our community for so many years. It's not only what goes on behind prison walls, it would, it's what goes on right here in our communities at home. It's not only safety by locking people up, but it's the safety that we deprive our children with right here at home. Reentry is a process of reintegrating former prisoners back into their communities. Why does reentry matter? Why should we care? Last year, there were 137,000 people released from prison, 2,400 here in San Francisco. Of that number, only 21% are expected to completely and successfully make their parole. That is an astonishing number. When we talk about social policy, when we talk about justice, that is not justice, not to anyone. And our communities have suffered because of that. And so it's not only about prison policy. It's not only about the law. But more importantly, it's about what's right 
for the safety of our communities right here at home. Today's program will not only educate and inform, but it will create through you, your ideas, your participation, whether you're here in the audience or you're watching this at home, a plan, a plan to move forward and to continue our work. So much of what we have tried to achieve through reentry and the process of reentry has been stifled. Why? Because there is a lack of working together. Whether you're talking about the state and the local government, whether you're talking about agencies and faith-based organizations, whether you're talking about service providers, the answer lies within all of those groups. And today, we're looking at not only creating a plan, but involving everybody, and particularly, and most importantly, formerly incarcerated individuals, because that's a big part of the solution. Our first panel will look at how reentry starts from the inside. It doesn't start from when you get out. It has to start before that. You will hear about some of the programs that have been designed here in San Francisco where we are working with individuals, whether in the county jail or prison, to provide the three essentials, education, employment, and housing upon release. They will talk about how, by providing reentry plans for individuals, realistic reentry plans, providing caseworker support, and ensuring that people have the support they need when they get out, that people can turn their lives around. Our mid-morning panel will talk about the barriers to employment, because that's really why we're here. We are here to try to get jobs for formerly incarcerated individuals so they can work. And the mid-morning panel is going to talk about how to overcome some of those barriers. I'm very proud of the work the Public Defender's Office has done around the Clean Slate program over the past 10 years. It used to be you had to push your lawyer's arm in order to and track them down in order to get your record cleared. Ten years later, we have cleared over 2,000 records so people can get back to work. And I think that as we move forward, we need to start looking at the barriers to employment, the barriers to housing, the barriers to education that are built in to the system and a system that has resulted in primarily failure. Our keynote speaker, Joey Ray Lucero, amazing change maker. We are so fortunate in the Bay Area to have organizations like Walden House, Delancey Street, the Northern California Service League, Up From Darkness, the Senior Ex-Offender Program, Positive Directions, Homies, and I can go on and on and on. And we have many model programs here. And today, we bring you a model program from Southern California known as Homeboy Industries. 
And like many of the successful programs, their success is not because of elected officials or uh, intervention uh, by a, a state or local department, but because these are programs that are run, operated, and controlled by formerly incarcerated individuals. And that's really a key that we see in programs that are successful. Because when given the opportunity, and I think what, you, what you'll see here today is evidence of that, so many formerly incarcerated individuals have gone on to create the most incredible success. And if we could create a program like that, that trains formerly incarcerated, not only just to get out and earn the minimum wage, but to be able to go out and realize their potential. And it's hard work, I know. And you have to want to do it. It's not something that everybody wants to do. And as we go through the program, you will see some of the success stories. You can go to www.sfreentry.com and read some of the stories of success. And you'll hear some of the stories today. Our third panel focuses on creating employment opportunities in the private sector. You will hear from individuals like Joseph Corbin, who started and built up a multi-million dollar construction company that now works in Oakland. And he hires formerly incarcerated individuals. Why? Because he knows they are excellent workers, committed, and will do the job he needs done. How does he know this? Because he himself is a formerly incarcerated individual. These are just a few stories of success, but the burden comes on all of us who care about this issue and want to create a supportive community. As District Attorney Harris said, this is not about opportunities without consequences. This is about making sure that individuals who come into the criminal justice system or juvenile justice system don't come back. It's as simple as that. We have a resource guide that we are going to be distributing uh, today, and uh, you can get your copy here. You can also go online at sfreentry.com and download this resource guide. To date, the Safe Communities Reentry Council has distributed over 7,000 of these guides throughout jails and prisons for people returning to San Francisco. We have a unique um, collaboration with the Department of Corrections, and they have actually helped fund the publication of these guides. And these guides were prepared with the assistance and support of formerly incarcerated individuals. Everything that you would want to know. How to vote, from how to get your record cleared, to how to get a driver's license, to how to qualify for SSI before you get out. But really, how do we know that reentry works? Well, let me just share with you a story of a man that I'll call Jesse. I met Jesse about 15 years ago. I was a 
younger, a young public defender at the time I was assigned to his case. Jesse was at probably the worst moment in his life. He was morally bankrupt. He lost his family. He had very little left to live for, and he was facing a double life sentence. We worked the case, tried to do everything we could. And by almost some divine intervention, the victim's family came forward and said they wanted to meet with Jesse. And he met with them. And in a process that has now come to be known as restorative justice, they supported the fact that Jesse should be released one day. Not something that happens very often in the criminal justice system. When Jesse was released, 12 years later, he called me. And he said that he didn't have much hope. When he was in, he got little education. He, his family was gone. His wife had divorced him. Uh, his family, his father had passed away. And he felt that he had very little prospect of succeeding. Jesse did one thing when he was in. He talked to a caseworker from a program uh, that's known as the NOVA program, a reentry program that's offered and was initiated by the, the sheriff, Michael Hennessy. And so within a few days of his release, and of course, you know, when you get out of prison, all you get is a one-way bus ticket and $200. That was gone in a couple of days. He called the NOVA caseworker, and they found him transitional housing for a short period. They found him a job at Goodwill, earning the minimum wage, and he was slowly able to start putting his life together. It was hard, very difficult for him. Fast forward, about six months later, Jesse was able to take the skills that he learned at Goodwill, find a job. He's earning, I think, $10 an hour now as a laborer. Not a lot of money, but a start. He was able to save enough through the support of his caseworker to get his own apartment. He's got a small SRO, nothing fancy, but it's a start. And this year, Jesse's going to be, for the first time, filing his tax return. First time that he's done that in his life. Jesse is proof that reentry works. He's got a long way to go, and I'm proud to say that he's here today with us here in the audience. And if he can be an example of what is possible, we can all be examples of what is possible. And this is about everyone, caseworkers, Reentry professionals, health professionals, mental health professionals, housing specialists. We need everyone to participate in the process of reentry. 
So thank you very much. I am absolutely, again, excited uh, to be here. Uh, we have an incredible panel uh, for our for first panel, and uh, I'm now going to introduce uh, Caroline uh, Guzman, who is uh, here from the uh, National Council on Crime and Delinquency, and she will uh, be the moderator uh, for our first panel. Thank you. Carolina Guzman, and I will, it's my pleasure to be the, your moderator today in the morning. We have a great panel with us today. We are going to be targeting the issue of what can prisons and jails do to better connect people to employment upon release. A couple of things to tell you before we start. Uh, there should be some of these yellow slips around where you are, and if they're not, there will be volunteers coming up and down the aisle to give you this. And these are so that you can write the questions that you may have for the panel, and we will be reading them at the end. The way it's going to work today is that each of the speakers will, talk, will tell you who they are, will tell you their name, and will tell you a little bit about their agency. And then we'll be talking about what we can do to address the issue of employment for our reentry community. Um, and then we'll have 20 minutes to, do, uh, to have a dialogue where we can ask some of these questions. If you have additional questions afterwards, please go ahead and write them here and put your contact name or your email, and all the proceedings and additional information could be sent to you via that way. All right? So I will start to my left with um, Sheriff Hennessy. I'll tell you a little bit uh, maybe in terms of who is here at the table first. As I mentioned, my name is Carolina Guzman. I'm with the National Council on Crime and Delinquency. Um, uh, Sheriff Hennessy with the City and County in San Francisco. Mr. Patrick Boyd, uh, Chief Adult Probation Officer of the San Francisco Probation. Ms. Catherine Jett, um, Undersecretary of Programs for the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Uh, Donnie Diego, uh, Senior Accountant Manager for Acrobat Staffing. And Tarek Amer, is that correct? Program Manager, Insight Center for Community Economic Development. Go ahead, Sheriff. Okay. <clears throat> well, welcome, everybody. I'm very happy to see such a big crowd here. I'm Mike Hennessy. Uh, I run jails. Uh, <laughs> I'm here to talk a little bit about the programs in the jails, but more specifically trying to emphasize uh, education issues and employment issues. Um, in the jails itself, over the years, we've developed a, a number of programs, some of which you're familiar with and a couple of which you may not be. Uh, we started out by developing a women's drug treatment program, a therapeutic community model uh, called SISTERS, which continues to run. Uh, we also then morphed and created a men's drug treatment, substance abuse drug treatment program, substance and alcohol program. Uh, called Roads to Recovery. Uh, and then we took that model, the therapeutic community model, and applied it to um, a more risky population 
which is violent offenders, men who either have a current charge of violence or who have a history of violence. Uh, and it has expanded beyond the therapeutic community uh, model in, and has emphasized more of a restorative justice model where uh, victims and victim advocates play a much greater role in terms of helping create the curriculum and in addressing the offenders um, while they are in custody. Um, we then, um, about five years ago, uh, realized that um, lack of education and lack of a high school degree was one of the uh, major impediments uh, for people finding employment upon release. And we created a, a nonprofit corporation, Charter High School, which is funded through Charter High School money, uh, called Five Keys Charter High School. We currently have about uh, 250 people uh, attending our high school in custody and out of custody. Um, we initially established it in custody, but realized that many of the people in the county jail are there for either weeks or months um, and would not have time to complete their high school education. And so we set up a post-release location at 70 Oak Grove, about, about a block and a half away from the Hall of Justice, so that people could continue their high school education for free um, at that location as well. Uh, that location, 70 Oak Grove, is also the site of um, a long-term program of the Sheriff's Department called Post-Release Education Project, PREP. And PREP is a sort of umbrella social service um, uh, program where people, ex-offenders, can come and receive counseling and referrals to um, drug treatment or job employment or uh, whatever other um, main issues they may have. And then two years ago, uh, the Board of Supervisors uh, challenged uh, my department and particularly my department of the public defender uh, to address the issue of violence in the community. Uh, up until this time, most of our uh, the sheriff's department's um, perspective have, had been addressing these issues while people were still in custody. But um, the board challenged uh, Jeff Adachi and I to come up with a program uh, addressing violence in the community itself. And uh, we developed a program called the No Violence Alliance, NOVA. And NOVA is a voluntary program. We go through the jails. Uh, initially, we went through the jails, and now we also go uh, under contract into state prisons, trying to identify individuals coming back into, into the San Francisco community who have violent current charges or violent histories. Um, and then offer them the participation in a case management program. And the case managers are um, all uh, community-based CBOs who we contract with to provide these types of services. And the services may um, uh, address housing. We will provide housing. We will provide uh, continuing education through our high school. We will help people get into college. We will help people get into job training. We will help people find employment. Um, and the um, results have been actually pretty good. We just finished the first formal evaluation of the program, about an 18-month 18 uh, 18 evaluation. And considering the, risky, the riskier nature of this population, uh, I think the, the results have been very good. Uh, we used a control group of similar uh, people who had similar crimes who did not participate in the program and compared it to the 
approximately 250 people who've been in our program. And over that period of time um, of the control group, 68% were rearrested. And of the people who were in our NOVA program, 36% were rearrested. So, and, it, and of the people who were rearrested, only 5% were rearrested for violent acts. They were, the others were arrested for primarily drug offenses or uh, theft offenses. So I think the NOVA approach, the case manager approach, um, I think has been a very successful one. We also have um, uh, recognized that women have different uh, needs and issues than men. Ha, <laughs> anybody, anybody realize that? <laughs> just boing, just sort of, you know. We figured that out on our own. Uh, and uh, so we took a, a formerly unused uh, um, work furlough building and we've turned it into a women's reentry center. It's a block away from the Hall of Justice at 930 Bryant Street. And it is a full service center for women offenders, uh, whether they're coming out of state prison or whether they're coming out of the county jail. Um, I'm getting the hook here. Uh, and uh, at that program, we will, we will provide uh, case management. We will provide referrals to um, organizations that, that can address the specific needs of women ex-offenders. Um, and unfortunately, I was in uh, Mexico all last week speaking at a restorative justice conference, so I didn't have time to do a lot of my homework on this. But I, because we have just completed the evaluation on NOVA, I do have some figures on that that um, – that uh, we currently have 87 people who are involved in that we have placed in jobs or who are in job training uh, programs, and they range from construction to uh, shelter, being shelter monitor, warehouse work, drivers, uh, Department of Public Works, uh, landscaping, welding, um, cook, cooking, um, drug counselors, case managers, uh, display, display union local 50 and uh, several other categories. So we have uh, been successful in helping, and this is a group of people who have violent histories, of uh, putting them in job training and job placement. And then lastly, uh, because I am getting the hook here, um, I only mentioned that um, for the last, uh, I don't know how many years, maybe as many as 10 years, the Northern California Service League has put on a ex-offender job fair once a year uh, and brings a variety of organizations and employers uh, to a particular location this year and last year they did it at uh, the state building um, and has provided a really good service. And I don't have figures on their results, but uh, I know you can talk with people from Northern California Service League. But because they only did it once a year, uh, the Sheriff's Department decided to that we would do one once a year six months later. So now there are two specific uh, job fairs for ex-offenders, designed for ex-offenders, where uh, prospective employers and job training programs will come. And um, I know that uh, each time we've done it, that um, two to 300 ex-offenders have showed up uh, and gotten resources. And uh, unfortunately, as I said, I didn't get a chance to do all my homework for today uh, to find out how many job placements we've made from that. But I know that there have been many. And I think that's something that we can continue to do. And then very lastly, I will say that uh, we've just begun to partner um, with the Department of Corrections, uh, who have given us a, a uh, substantial amount of money to expand our NOVA program, our anti-violence community-based program, 
two parolees, and we are, have already begun uh, accepting parolees uh, to put them on our case management program. And we may, we are very close to signing a contract to um, use one housing unit of the jail for a prisoner reentry program uh, where people who are serving the last 12 months of their state prison sentence would uh, come to the San Francisco County Jail and partake in programs in the San Francisco County Jail prior to their release. That still is awaiting uh, Board of Supervisors approval, but it's um, after a lot of uh, paper passing back and forth, it's something that the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation and my department have agreed upon the, the conditions. So uh, that's sort of my pitch. Great. Thank you. Um, just for my panel, I just want to let you know that when I put up my yellow sheet, it means you have five minutes. Okay? All right, Mr. Boyd. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Reentry Summit. Um, I want to thank you all for being here and particularly to thank all of you for your efforts to assist those that need help in successfully reentering and becoming successful members of our communities. I've been here in um, San Francisco about a year and a half now. I'm the chief adult probation officer. In San Francisco, we have a separate adult and juvenile probation department, so I have the adult probation department. <clears throat> My experience, though, goes back um, almost four decades. I started in 1970 as an intern in the state parole office in uh, Santa Barbara. And I worked in state parole and state prisons, uh, division of juvenile justice, and uh, probation departments. The one thing that I've seen very clearly <clears throat> during my career is that we have been very good at figuring out what does not work in, excuse me, allergies. <clears throat> in 1980, the California prison, or the California population was about 24 million. We've increased in population in California by about 58 percent between 1980 and 2006. During that time, we grew our prison system by 617 percent. So 58 percent increase in population of the state and 617 percent increase in prison population. We are not safer today than we were in 1980. We have not, so, we have not solved um, substance abuse. And, excuse me, we have not solved reentry. I think, though, that we do know many things that do work as well as things that don't work. So what doesn't work is sending people back to prison all the time. What does work is providing supportive services, family-oriented, prevention, treatment, whether it's substance abuse treatment or mental health treatment, education, job readiness, and housing. <clears throat> For the Adult Probation Department in San Francisco, we have approximately 6,500 uh, probationers. 
Most of them are felons. Many have a wide range of issues. Most have substance abuse problems. Many are homeless. And many have difficulty maintaining a job because of their job skill levels and education. In recent years, the past two years, uh, since Chief Woodford started at the as chief, my immediate predecessor, we've been on a path to try to establish evidence-based programming. The foundation for evidence-based programming is that you do a validated objective assessment of what the individual's needs are. The department adopted the National Council on Crime and Delinquencies case assessment system. We adopted that about a year ago. Since then, we've assessed 2,927 of our 6,500 probationers. What we've found is that 86% are found to be high risk, high risk of reoffending, 14% moderate risk, and only 1% low. And the reason we have a high preponderance of high risk with San Francisco probation is we send a lower percent to state prison than other counties, and we have a very extensive, effective pretrial diversion program that Will Leon operates. So San Francisco adult probation gets the more serious probationers. And we will continue to work to establish evidence-based practices, provide improved case services, whether it's domestic violence, gang caseloads, or our new 18 to 25 program that we're establishing with the assistance of uh, researchers from Stanford. The, the focus of the reentry conference today of linkages between incarceration programs and employment when persons reenter re the community is absolutely critical to the success of these probationers and to parolees released from state prison. Thank you. Good morning. As a reminder, I'm Kathy Jett, and uh, I am the Undersecretary of Programs for the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Uh, big mouthful. I never know what to do with that undersecretary thing either. Does it mean there's an oversecretary? I mean, it's just an unusual title. And, and I have uh, been with the department for about a year and a half, so I have uh, a background in a number of areas such as substance abuse and women's health and, and other areas of public uh, safety and public health. Um, I, the Department of Corrections is uh, your state prison system, which is running at about 195% of its designed capacity, meaning that, uh, that many of our institutions are running under a situation that is triple bunked, meaning that people are packed into cells and gymnasiums and recreation uh, rooms and, and expected to uh, come out better than when they came in. And of course, I think California has, over the past several years, come to the realization that uh, the department really isn't putting a very good product out. And that it would probably be fair to say that people that come into the institution um, left perhaps worse than the day they walked into the institution. Um, many, of the, many of the perspectives 
that I hold or I hold from two vantage points. Again, one uh, having worked in the drug treatment field and in public health settings for a number of years, but also from really getting to know what these institutions are up against. And when I say that people come out a lot worse than when they came in, that wasn't something that the department chose to do. Um, the department is actually funded, and, and at one point, and as I would sit down as we're planning new programs for offenders and talk to what I call sort of the old-timers, meaning that they've been around for a long time in the correction system, they remind me that it wasn't always this way that there were times when they actually were at a design capacity, that there were times where there were programs built into every institution, and that you would use uh, certainly many of the places that we now have triple bunks for education, for drug treatment services and the like. But around 1980, when we decided that drug addicts were bad role models and should go to prison, things changed. I, of course, never thought drug addicts were role models at all. But the, the laws changed, and the way we uh, dealt with the drug offender population changed, as, as well as uh, a sense uh, in the public mind that we needed to be tough on crime. The result of that was that we didn't have, uh, that offenders were basically viewed as people that didn't deserve much of anything. They needed to go to prison, and I don't think anybody ever imagined that they would come home or imagine that they would come home worse off than when they left. I don't think anybody thought those things through. What we thought was, let's put them into prison because they did something wrong, they did something bad, and let's punish them. So we went through decades of a punishment mentality. So many of the programs that were in the institutions turned into storage areas, places we, we told uh, through legislation the institutions to remove things like weights, in uh, gymnasiums, we told them to, to remove uh, various vocational programs. And over the years, we cut, 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 cut. But our prison population continued to grow. So where are you going to cut? You can't cut the staff. You can't cut the people that are feeding and clothing and housing. You can't cut the correctional staff, so you end up cutting programs. Well, I hope my presence here today is to mark a change in the view of not only the legislature, but I'm hoping the public at large. That many people are waking up to the fact that drug offenders come home. About 90% of all of the offenders in our institutions will come home. They have a date. And they don't, we don't put them into the community by lottery. We don't say, gee, you know, you came from LA, so let's send you to Santa Rosa. Everybody that comes into the prison and is released, they're released to the last county of residence. So they're coming truly home. And this is something I think that our communities are beginning to wake up and take notice of. And I think that that's true in Sacramento uh, for this governor in particular, for Matt Cates, who would have loved to have been here today to, to talk with you because this is his passion to see that offenders are rehabilitated and reintegrated successfully back into the community. We are all there at the Department of Corrections now with a very, very clear mission, which is to reduce recidivism and to do much of what Pat mentioned, and that is look at what's evidence-based, look at what works, and look at how we can change our entire custody environment to be more rehabilitative. So to that end, with 170,000 inmates and 125 or 123,000 parolees, 
we are beginning to use evidence based instrumentation that are risk needs assessments these are actuarial data that it provides us that will determine the risk of an offender's a particular offender has to re-offend and commit crime it also calls out what are those needs that the offender has so we could mitigate those risks that is truly a rehabilitation department a department that's going to look at offenders not just by the crime that they committed but from the day they walk into a reception center begin to assess what they need to do upon re-entry and that's the new day at CDCR as of next month the beginning of next month we will begin assessing inmates in our reception centers based on the new instrumentation that we've tested and adopted as a department we'll also be implementing what are the evidence based programs that have been lined out for us by an expert panel and those are education vocation family services financial programs and substance abuse programs we'll also be instituting sex offender programs we're one of the few states in the country that has absolutely nothing for sex offenders while they're in custody on the outside we'll be using the same types of evidence based tools but in this is called a parole violation matrix so that when an offender does violate the first reaction is to send them back to state prison that will be looking and making investments into local communities so that we have intermediate sanctions now the purpose of the panel was really to focus more on employment and and to that end I want to say that there's a program that we just will start up as of this budget cycle and it's called new start it's an evidence-based program that will focus on reentry and it will focus on changing what we do in our institutions so that matches what the employment needs actually are in the community let's face it no one leaves prison and makes license plates you know there's there's there but there's a need for construction workers there are needs by for cable workers and electronics and those are the types of vocational programs that will be bringing into the institution and some of those activities have already begun and then on a final note is that with with the AB 900 the department has been actually provided resources although they're very difficult resources to spend or we would have spent them already but they've provided us resources to actually build reentry centers and the idea in California is to get inmates closer to home that's what reentry centers are about in San Francisco I just want to say sheriff and into the the host and organizers of this event it's a pleasure to be in a community where I don't have to sell reentry that I don't have to convince you that offenders come back and you've done just a fantastic job on this event today and also with our partnership around reentry so hopefully in the future you will be hearing more about the Department of Corrections in terms of purchasing community services that will respond to offenders needs You'll be hearing more from the Department of Corrections about working with our local California Workforce Investment Boards and training them on how to deal with our offender populations to get them jobs. And hopefully you'll be starting to see the R in the CDCR, and that is a rehabilitative environment for offenders so that when they come in to CDCR that they are getting services that they need. And that when they leave and come back to the community, they're coming back as more productive citizens, more prepared to work, more prepared to interface with family and all of the 
the nuances and responsibilities that, uh, that they have once they're released in the community. And, and on a final note, there is somebody in the audience that I would like to introduce, and I can't really see the audience, uh, but, but Terry McDonald is out there somewhere, and she is our reentry director. Uh, there she is. So uh, please uh, reach out to Terry. Uh, she's here with the team from the department, and uh, she is eager to meet you, to understand what the services are that you provide, and to, to really garner your support to help us educate the state about the need for reentry programs. Thank you. Hi, everybody. My name is Donnie Diego, and I'm the senior account manager of a company called Acrobat Staffing. Um, today, I don't have a bunch of numbers, percentages, or stats uh, to give you. But what I can tell you is these programs are important that they do work. I'm a little nervous up here because the people I'm up here on the panel with are the exact same people I used to run from for over 10 years. I was recently released from Pelican Bay a little over two years ago. Um, I've been in and out of the prison system for over 10 years. Did the whole San Quentin, North Block, West Block, Donner, Alpine. I know that place back and forth. Been there six, seven, no, I'm, I mean nine times, I'm sorry. Um, CMC, Tracy, DVI, and this last one, Pelican Bay. Now, being in Pelican Bay, that was ruthless. I mean, if you've heard of Pelican Bay, that's not, that's, the place is no joke. There wasn't one day I didn't think about coming home. That's all I thought about was coming home. Even on my best day, I hated every second of it. So the day I was released, I took that long bus ride back here to uh, San Francisco. What I didn't realize was that my father had passed away and the house that I grew up in was sold. So if you can imagine my surprise when I walked to the door, rang the doorbell of the house I grew up in, and another family answered my door telling me, we bought the house, you have to leave. Just like that, I was homeless. I didn't know what to do. I was scared. But I knew I could go chill out and hang out with the homeboys, but doing that would get me right back in the circle of things that sent me to the penitentiary in the first place, and I couldn't do it anymore. So I went to the parole officer, and I told him, hey, I don't have any money. I have no family. I have no place to stay. I did have a lot of pride, but I had to get rid of that, so I needed help, so I asked for it. So he tells me he can, he can uh, send me to a place I can stay for one year, absolutely free. I was like, sign me up. We get in the car within five minutes. He brings me smack dab center of the tenderloin. Right there in the tenderloin. And right when I got out of the car, that's when I had to restructure my thinking. I realized right then and there, you know, it's not about getting what you want. It's wanting what you got. And what did I have? I had a place to stay at a warm bed. I had three hot meals. I had resources. I had help available to me. All there, you know, just for the asking. So here I am looking out my window. It's fit there on 111 Taylor Street. Now, I didn't have a television. I tell everybody this because I didn't need a television. I had Taylor Vision. All right. Taylor Vision right outside my window. We had all the crime, drama, dope, hustling, hoes, drugs, you name it. Right outside the window. It'll entertain you for hours. For about three weeks of feeling sorry for myself, not realizing, you know what, I'm that close to being what's out there right outside my window. 
I had to do something. I had, to, I had to do something. I had to get a job. I had to go to work. And I realized there's no substitute for work because that is the price you pay for success. And for me, success is the best form of revenge. And I'll get in that in a minute. So I went to the job developer, and they told me about what um, the organization that the sheriff uh, was speaking about, the Northern California Service League. Northern California Service League, i got to tell you, saved my life. Shirley, I see you out there. Thank you so much. <laughs> Northern California Service League, I told them what I needed my help. And what they did, they enrolled me in a life skills class. They gave me the tools about how to get a job, how to keep a job, all that. They helped me with the resume. They gave me clothes for the interview. An interview that they set up for me, I didn't have to do anything but just want it and go. So they sent me to a place called Acrobat Staffing. And Acrobat Staffing, they hired me and they sent me to... Um, the corporate office of Levi Strauss. Now I was a dishwasher, cashier, stock, uh, stock person. I busted tables, did whatever it took. I did that for about four months. They wanted to hire me. They gave me a benefits package. They were talking about a management training program. I did whatever it took until my background check came in. And not, not only could I uh, not honor my application, but I had to leave the building. But I wasn't going to let that stop me. I heard Acrobat Staffing was handpicking a new team and expanding their operations. So I went back to that office and I convinced those people they needed me. How? Well, I was a, I was a drug dealer. I was a hustler. I lied my ass off, to tell you the truth. I can say that now. But I needed it. I wanted it. I just needed somebody to give me a chance. And I did everything that nobody else wanted to do. I turned everything to an event. I made... Again, because I was living at 111 Taylor, I didn't want to be there, so I spent all my time and efforts at the office. And based on the numbers last year, I think I brought in 70% of all the revenue of the entire company that came in through me. You know, it was interesting because when I was hustling and bustling and, and selling drugs and doing all that, there was three things that I thought that was important to me that I had strove for. Number one was respect, power, and money. Now, since I let all that stuff go and became focused and serious on this corporate world, the respect, it came up to me before I even knew it. Respect. I've got, in this industry, I'm making a name for myself in one of the best cities in the country, San Francisco. As far as the power is concerned, I have the power to hire every single person in this room. I've done that before. We have the power to change people's lives. I do that every day. Now, as far as the money is concerned, if you're the uh, senior account manager managing multi-million dollar accounts, I'm not broke. You know? And again, for me, success is the best form of revenge. <clears throat> because for all those people told me they expected me to fail. They wanted me to, uh, to fail. They told me I wasn't going to be about nothing. Okay, I came home from Pelican Bay, and I was homeless. Now, I got my nice little two-bedroom house in the suburbs. I drive a 2008 in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> I started off in acrobat staffing as a temp. Now I'm the senior account manager overlooking multi-million dollar accounts. was working for Levi Strauss. They didn't want to hire me. Now Levi Strauss is my client. 
You know, I came home from Pelican Bay with um, those gray dress-out sweats that we all love so much, a pair of tennis shoes that I bought on the yard for two cigarettes, $40 on my paperwork. You know, now I wear $600 suits to work every day. So again, success is the best form of revenge because for all those people who told me I wasn't going to make it, I was going to fail, how the hell do you like me now? <laughs> And again, like I said, I don't have stats, I don't have numbers, I don't have percentages, but what I'm here to tell you, that there's no one in this room who can tell me that this stuff doesn't work. Because I'm proof to tell you it does. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. I want to thank everyone for being here. I want to thank the organizers of this event. And I also want to thank my fellow panelists. My name is Tarek Amar. I'm from the Insight Center for Community Economic Development. And I am a program manager there. I do work on uh, workforce development strategies. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how that has to do directly with this. The workforce development world has made great advances over the past 10 or 15 years, except in one area. And that area happens to be for formerly incarcerated people. We start, we've started to hear some um, places where there is movement, but in general, it's pretty lacking. The, the fact of the matter is that workforce development is probably about 10 to 15 years behind. Uh, workforce development for formerly incarcerated people is 10 to 15 years behind workforce development strategies for everybody else. This is highly problematic. And I want to talk about two, the, sort of the combination of two strategies that have existed out there for the past decade, how they can be brought together and really work for formerly incarcerated people. Um, let's talk about the first, staffing agencies. Donnie talked about Acrobat. Um, there is a strategy that has been sort of in discussion for a little while called alternative staffing agencies, where you have what's called a double bottom line. You're not only concerned about the profit of the, the business, but you're also concerned with the movement of the, the clients and the employees towards economic security. So you're looking at both combined. You're not looking at just one or the other. You're looking at both as an effective way to move people towards economic self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Um, alternative staffing agencies are not really there at this point in time for formerly incarcerated people. That's a, an, a, a, another problem within the workforce development world. But there are elements of it that are perfect for formerly incarcerated people. Here's how they work. Uh, a person comes in with, say, pretty limited um, employment background, with pretty severe employment barriers, and with a stigma. So you're, maybe you're talking about people transitioning out of homelessness. People have, employers have a certain view, and so there's a stigma attached to those, um, to those people. Alternative staffing agencies come in, they provide support services to the individuals. They provide a sheltered work environment and, more importantly almost, they provide a bridge between the clients and the employer. So they, they are able to negotiate for the client with the employer to get that person into a, a, a job. The key thing is that the, the wages for alternative staffing agencies are decent wages. They're well above minimum wage, generally. 
More importantly, they move people along a career pathway. They move people from, say, a 10 to 11 to 12 dollar an hour job along a career pathway that will actually allow people, you know, in San Francisco, for instance, to be able to pay rent, to be able to buy a decent amount of food, to be able to provide childcare for children. So it moves people from extreme limitations in terms of employment to a lot of opportunities in terms of employment. That's the first strategy. The second strategy I want to talk about is called sector, the sector strategy. Sector looks at particular industries in an area. So in San Francisco, there are certain industries that are growing. There are certain industries that are, are failing. The purpose of sector is to look at the industries that are growing and the industries that also will allow people who have um, limited means or, or employment barriers to enter into those industries. Construction was one that was mentioned. Construction um, with the right amount of training is an accessible industry, it's a growth industry, and it's an industry that will pay good wages after, um, from the beginning uh, through journeyman status. Combining these two strategies, then, is sort of the work that I'm doing now. You get people into a sheltered work environment. It's temporary initially, but you, you, the, the workers get vetted and get accepted by, by the employer. And then they're moved along a career pathway over the course of a year, two years, that will lead them to economic security. So you bring these two strategies together as a way to really start to tackle these problems. Now, I mentioned before that with alternative staffing agencies, there are sort of limited, there are limited models existent now for formerly incarcerated people. They exist around the country, but within the Bay Area, they're extremely limited. Sector strategies have been established for formerly incarcerated people actually here in, in the city and county of San Francisco. Um, the DA's office uh, sponsored a study to look at um, industries that are open to formerly incarcerated people and will move people along that career pathway and cut down on recidivism. The problem is these two haven't been combined. And so my work, in, um, starting from this point forward for the next couple of years, is going to bring these two strategies together to st start to attack the problem of recidivism that is so prevalent amongst uh, formerly incarcerated people and um, and to make the workforce development world something that actually is open and accepting to formerly incarcerated people. So thank you very much. Great. Thank you to the panel. Um, we've had really great ideas and really great issues that have emerged discussion. For me, some of the things that, that have emerged in, in your discussion today, I could say that boils down to shift in paradigm, not only from uh, the local perspective in terms of providing different kinds of um, approaches to, say, violent offenders as the sheriff department, but also from the state level in terms of um, broadening the scope, the scope of the kind of jobs that are, will be available for people who are going back to the communities, to also shifting in the paradigm of, of, of the community themselves, like Donnie was talking about. Because it's not only enough to have those services, you have to have the, the need to want to change and then the humility, which I think emerged from your discussion, to say, you know, this is where I am now and I just have to take advantage of what I have. So. I think that today I learned tremendously from your discussion, and I thank you so much. I want to um, open it up now to the floor, and I'll start on my left. Open up 
Fenders acquire employment is central. However, how can we better address substance abuse issues? Employment will not keep uh, if people cannot stay clean. I'm sorry, I, I had a hard time hearing you say it again. Helping ex-offenders acquire employment is central. However, how can we better address uh, substance abuse issues? Employment will not keep if people cannot stay clean. Well, I can address it uh, to some degree. Um, th that is certainly a, a major, major issue. Uh, we did a uh, demographic uh, survey of the county jail about uh, six months ago and 50% of the people, of the 2,000 people in the San Francisco County Jail had as their most serious charge a drug offense. Not thieving, not petty theft to get money, not auto theft to get money to buy drugs, but a health and safety code violation. So just from that little snapshot, you can see that uh, drugs are certainly a major problem. Um, as I've mentioned, Previously, we do have uh, drug treatment programs that begin in the county jails, for, one specifically for women, one specifically for men, and our uh, post-release programs will place people in uh, drug treatment programs, substance abuse programs, drug or alcohol or, or combined. Uh, but it is a, a constant battle that the individual is going to have to face, and it's also a funding issue in terms of finding placement um, and funding to place people into drug treatment. But um, there's no question about it that, you know, drugs are the uh, engine that drive the criminal justice system, at least in San Francisco, and it has to, we have to continue to work with our Department of Public Health um, and other community-based organizations to see that these services are made available and that people are encouraged to participate in them. It's very difficult for people to participate in, in them involuntarily, but, um, uh, we have to continue to work in that area. Yeah, go ahead, Ms. Jen. Um, a couple of things. One is that uh, one of the things we're very hopeful about is, is this uh, matrix that we're putting together for the parole side of the house. This is, this is an instrument that's really going to encourage our parole agents to uh, monitor offenders and continually to put them back into drug treatment if that is the offense versus putting them back into the uh, reception centers for them to churn and churn and churn until they spit out again, commit a crime, and come back. So, so this, this instrument will encourage them uh, to continually put somebody into different levels of intensity of drug treatment. The, the second part is that uh, these assessment instruments that we're talking about are great. But if communities don't deliver the service that's on the assessment instrument, it won't work. Uh, a case in point would be in, in Proposition 36. Uh, when I ran that program, the majority of counties were not placing offenders into the level of care that they needed. They were placing offenders into outpatient. And as you know, we've heard from Donnie and others, when people come out of our institutions, and about 85% of our institutional population has some drug offense. About 70% of them are bona fide addicts. The rest are dealers both of which could benefit by either academics or treatment when they leave. But none of that will do a darn bit of good. And we'll, it won't work if we don't get them into the community-based setting for at least a year for them to be able to really translate what they have learned in the in-custody environment to the community. That's going to be based on an assessment. And we have to be careful that we're not trying to monetarily 
sort of work with what we can afford versus what the offender needs. It's worth making the investment. As you can see in Donnie here, who, when he had enough time to reintegrate, he did fine. You can't expect someone to leave prison and go to an outpatient program. It just doesn't work. A residential setting is going to give them the stability that they need. So there's a number of things that we have to start reinforcing and funding treatment in the community. That's what's going to work with, the, with drugs, not treatment in, in prison. And I also think what the sheriff's doing is a model for other sheriff's departments, which is to, when you do have an offender at that level, to provide the treatment services and pay for the aftercare. Those are the two things that will make a difference. I spoke earlier about the in excess of 600 percent increase in state prison population in three decades. We made a decision nationally with the war on drugs that the treatment of choice for substance abuse is lock them up and send them to prison. We need to rethink that and look at the public health model and recognize that <laughs> we need to recognize that addiction is a disease and we need to treat it as such. Thank you. Let's do a second question, please. Okay, Kathleen Lacey of Citywide CM Forensics um, actually asks, I'd like to hear panel members talk about what needs to be done for reentry of mentally ill offenders. Specifically, could Kathy Jett talk about, it looks like MIOS, reentering from prison? <laughs> Try to grab that acronym. It's, uh, Is it the mentally ill offender? Myocor. Myocor. The mentally ill offender. Right. Um, offender crime reduction. Crime reduction is myocor. It, and it was a, a, a funded, um, state-funded grant application that counties could apply for which I think has run out. It either has run out or did it run out completely, Al? Yeah. I believe it was a uh, casualty of the budget. And uh, we had a uh, mentally ill offender grant here in San Francisco, and essentially we used a case management program. Um, and uh, as part of our NOVA uh, uh, project, we do have a sub-NOVA project for mentally ill offenders, uh, and we again use a case management approach, which is you get a case manager, the case manager assesses what your individual needs are and makes sure that you get to see the right uh, medical professionals and that you're taking your meds and you're living in an environment that is supportive uh, for your own individual circumstance. And, and we found um, with this type of case management program that mentally ill offenders would greatly reduce their reincarceration rate and could function um, at a decent level, uh, a humane level in the community. But the MIOCR program or the mental offender crime reduction uh, money, I think, has pretty much dried up. Um, and the um, only criminal justice component of it that I'm personally familiar with is a sub a subgroup of our uh, No Violence Alliance program, the NOVA program in the Sheriff's Department. Uh, but I, I think it's something that um, has to be readdressed uh, in the county jail itself. Approximately 20 percent of the people in our custody are on an active uh, jail psych services caseload. Are there incentives for employers to be able to hire, for example, people who have mental health issues as well as the criminal justice background? Um, do you 
or what are some strategies to be able to incentivize agencies to, to because I think that there's a lot of limitations obviously so can you speak a little bit about that I mean to my knowledge there aren't a tremendous amount of incentives currently um, there is work to create incentives generally to hire formerly incarcerated people um, specifically speaking to mentally ill I don't know that there's a lot of work going on presently. I think the important thing is to get the mentally ill the treatment they need to be able to stabilize them to the point where they can work. And this is another issue where over three decades, five decades actually, public policy decisions, we haven't done what we needed to do. Uh, in the late 60s, we passed the Latterman Petra Short Act the commitment of the Latterman Petra Short Act was to reduce state mental health hospital capacity because mental health care could be more effectively provided in the community. We did a wonderful job of reducing state mental health hospital capacity. We have not followed through on our commitment to provide appropriate mental health care in the community. I think there's uh, instead what we did is we've we've developed a system of mental health care in the state prison system that right. is the largest mental health provider in the state which was what what I was going to say about 20 you know, over 20 percent of our population is seriously mentally ill we have very poor transitional services uh, the myopa grants were probably one of the few that specifically catered to this population of transitioning uh, on the hopeful uh, and also prop 63 which was thought to bring in tremendous resources to mental health services specifically discriminated against parolees by saying that they could not spend a red penny on parolees so that is something that uh, Secretary Cates and I are working with Senator Steinberg on, is to see if we could change part of that law, because it's ridiculous not to provide services to the people that need it the most and that are coming home to your community. So that's one activity. And the second is that we do have $10 million out of our um, our. Uh, AB 900 funds that we will be uh, working with counties to set up transitional services for our mentally ill offenders. Thank and that will be in the coming year. Thank you. Let's do another question up there. To be a follow-up to the last question you asked, what are you doing to convince employers to hire convicted felons? Um, I could speak from the states uh, that, that what I spoke about sir, earlier was something called New Start, Project New Start, that is, a, a, again, a program that we're operating under the auspices of AB 900. Um, that program will bring together uh, high-level employers and unions to talk with us about how we can incentivize or break some of the stigmatization about this population. Um, we've looked a lot at what other states have done, and I think California needs to follow suit in terms of providing some type of rehabilitative certification so that people know that, that somebody really did make a difference when they went into incarceration, made an investment in changing their lives, and should be given a chance to employment. The second is that we need to question our own government policies. One of the things that we envision coming out of that, uh, for instance, Florida did a survey of all of their government agencies to ask, what, are, what were our policies about 
hiring ex-offenders and, and felons. So those are the kind of things that I think have to happen on the state level so we can bring awareness publicly and we could also cater some to what employers' needs are and, and give these offenders the second chance that they deserve in employment. And locally, um, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, um, we do have a job developer at our post-release education program at 70 Oak Grove for any ex-offender who wants to come in. We have job developers specifically as one of the goals of the No Violence Alliance, and I believe the number was, I think we have 87 people currently in jobs or job training programs. And our Women's Reentry Center uh, has a 12-week uh, job readiness program and I don't have statistics on placements at this point, but it's a fairly new program. So uh, we recognize that, that uh, job placement, job preparedness is a major issue, but people have, have got to address um, a place to live, uh, their recovery issues, uh, employment, their family issues, and their repayment of their debt to their community. So I think there are all types of issues uh, besides you, you can't just take mm -hmm. the guy the first day out of jail and say, here's a job at Levi Strauss or here's a job uh, uh, at City Hall uh, and here's your supervisor and here are your coworkers. Uh, have a good time. Uh, you know, there is a job readiness component that really has to be um, uh, lay the groundwork for people to be able to uh, function and work. We have a, um, for, for many years in San Francisco, We've had a um, horticulture-based program uh, called the Garden Project, and it now has a million-dollar contract with the Public Utilities Commission to do landscaping uh, at various locations throughout the city and as far away as Hetch Hetchy. And uh, some of those individuals are ex-offenders, and some of them are at-risk at youth, but they're almost all people who've never held a job before. And so they are learning how to work in the work environment, and then they transition on to other jobs. But again, there's not as many placements as are truly needed. Donnie, I would, I'm sorry, I just oh. want to ask maybe Donnie, from your perspective, what, um, in addition to, to your drive, what do you think were the main components around you that helped you succeed in the, in the job? Like what, what helped you convince Acrobat that you were the best person for them? Well, that, a lot of those skills came from when I was possibly not when I was a drug dealer. I mean, I was, I was good at letting <laughs> you know what you wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, the Northern California Service League prepared me for, um, for, uh, for, for, for interviews. They gave me the tools, they gave me skills. They also gave me the confidence. They also gave me, they made me feel a little bit better about myself. They made me feel I can do it. And I don't think uh, without that, I don't think I'd have been able to, to go there with the, uh, with the idea that, you know, walking in there that I didn't have any skills, any experience, but they needed to hire me. I didn't think I'd been able to at least do that without at least feeling that I could. And, and, and there's another excellent partner, and I, and I know I'm leaving out many other people, and I'm sorry, um, but uh, Goodwill Industries in San Francisco mm -hmm. is an excellent partner in, in job training, job preparedness. And I was talking with Deborah Alvarez, the, the director, uh, last or two weeks ago, about their truck driving uh, program. And with the development of Internet shopping, um, truck driving has really increased with FedEx and, and um, DFL and, and uh, those groups. And she says of the, the people that go through their truck driving school uh, at Goodwill, they have a 98% successful placement rate. Now, I think the question, uh, part of it was, 
what can we do in relation with employers to promote their understanding of the effectiveness of hiring ex-offenders. And, and I think that our community organizations do play a major role in that. Um, Goodwill is an example, Northern California Service League, um, the program component of Back on Track, of bringing in business organizations, employers, and labor organizations and helping them understand the benefits that the ex-offender can provide as an employee and the resources available there. I would say in addition to that, I mean, the role of the intermediary is invaluable. So bringing together all these sort of disparate groups, organizations, companies, et cetera, is, is a critical thing. In addition to that, though, sort of on a more micro level, is the fact that these intermediaries often act as um, an advocate for the employee. So if, um, if an employee is facing certain problems at work because of that stigmatization, the advocate from that intermediary can go in and start to, to work through the issues with the employers, with the other people within that, that company. So from the high-level policy all the way down to sort of this micro-level, the role of the intermediary is really a very critical one. Great. I think we have time for one more question. And, and I'm sorry to disappoint all of you who, who wrote great questions that I'm sure we would love to hear answers for. But I think that one of the things that we can try to do is submit those questions to the council website and, and hopefully get some feedback from our great panel. So please, one last question. Okay, this is a two-part question directed to um, Kathy Jett. And this is from Ron uh, Parker of SF Hot. First part, why not have input from ex-cons to CDCR programs to have real content, i.e. pre-release and medical and psych services? I will then ask, I'll ask the second part now. And then you can go back. Okay, to the and then you part. can remind me if I forget. Okay. <laughs> the second part reads Why are there no formerly incarcerated folks on the BPT? There used to be. There used to be. Yeah. Board of Prison Terms. Well, that, yeah, Board of Prison Terms. Um, well, I'll try to answer the first question first. Um, we actually are beginning to do that. In fact, in all of our reentry sites, I could tell you that. Um, that usually these are former offenders that are leading off as the chairperson or the service for the service angle of the project. Uh, and we've encouraged that among all counties. We could see that in the most successful counties, it, there are formerly uh, former offenders that know the services in the community that are really going to work with that population. Uh, many times they come out of existing CBOs. But we are also considering a very formalized board that would be a formerly uh, offenders of our institutions. Believe me, they, they come to us all the time and tell us what we've done wrong, and they're very quick to tell us what we could do to improve what it is that we deliver. So uh, we do have an open door. I think in the past there hasn't been an entry to that door or even a sign with a uh, that telling you how to get there. But now that we've opened up sort of a program aspect to CDCR, we're hearing from many, many former offenders. Uh, we encourage them to write us, and we do have them participate on a number of our advisory boards, and we, it sometimes takes us a little bit of time to get a community to uh, adopt a, a former offender. But when they do 
they realize how invaluable their services are and that they're going to think about things in reentry that a professional uh, person isn't going to think about, how to walk, how to dress, how to approach people on the street, how to drop various yard uh, demeanor that is, is not going to be written in any curriculum anywhere. And, and so we're quite aware of that. Now, I can't really answer why there isn't specifically. I didn't know that there was a former offender uh, on BPH, so that must have been some time ago. Typically, those are all, uh, all the provisions of what it takes to be a Board of Prison uh, Hearings Commissioner is in law. So I'll have to go back and look at the law and see if it's in there. Um, it may have been changed. It's an extremely political board, extremely political board, and that could be a discussion onto itself. Uh, so there's a lot of politics about who gets on and off that. Great. I'll ask you to please help me thank our great panel for their great information today. And your next panel is Know Your Rights, How Can We Overcome Employment Barriers Presented by Having a Criminal Record? And I think this should be coming in now. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. I think we're going to get rolling with the next panel if people want to get settled. My name is Jessie Warner. I'm a staff attorney at the National Employment Law Project. And this panel is Know Your Rights, How We Can Overcome Employment Barriers Presented by Having a Criminal Record. Our presenters today are Dorsey Nunn. He's the co-founder of All of Us Are None and the co-director of Legal Services for Prisoners with Children. Simon Samji, who is with the San Francisco Office of the Public Defender working in their Clean Slate project. Maurice Evans is a client of the National Employment Law Project and also has been a journeyman electrical lineman for close to 19, or over 19 years, rather. Anthony Fisher, who again is a client of the National Employment Law Project and also has over 20 years of experience in the banking and mortgage industry. We're going to start with Anthony, if you want to go ahead. Good morning, everyone. I am very excited to be here and also to be a part of this forum and the work that's being done. Uh, first, I must say that I, will, I am very thankful uh, to the Public Defender's Office and the Proposition 36 program. I must also thank the Clean Slate program and the great job they've done and is continuing to do. At this point, uh, words cannot uh, fully express the uh, gratitude I feel towards NELP, the National Employment Law Project, uh, with Jesse Warner and their staff. Um, their unwavering support 
shown over the past couple of months advocating on my behalf uh, basically have given me the encouragement through some difficult periods I have encountered in my pursuit to obtain as well as to maintain employment. Uh, un unfortunately, in spite of having uh, 20 plus years in the banking and mortgage industry, doing what I love, uh, showing a passion I have for my profession, due in part to the opportunity that present in helping others with their financial issues, I've been frustrated by the discriminatory practices um, of employers um, not giving an individual, uh, basically not um, basing their hiring decision on uh, a person's experience and capabilities but on um, other factors. Uh, case in point, uh, most recently I've had a job offer uh, rescinded by a major mortgage lender after a background investigation revealed a misdemeanor which absolutely had no bearing whatsoever on my ability to do the job or the job that I was hired to do. I was also fired from a position with Comcast, again, due in part by information earnestly reported by a background investigating agency. In spite of uh, completing the Proposition 36 program in San Francisco uh, successfully and obtaining a letter from the program itself, um, this letter was submitted to that employer on my behalf, indicating that the information reported was reported earnestly. Um, my employment was terminated with a, with a total disregard whatsoever uh, to the program, uh, to the proper Proposition 36 program, and uh, everything that it stood for. Um, I know that in life sometimes that we've encountered um, tremendous adversity. There are challenges that, unfortunately, we do not always make the right choices in our decision-making process. Yet and still, uh, there are times when you reach a point that um, we have to accept full responsibility for our actions. I myself have gone through some struggles in my life. But uh, I've accepted full responsibility for all those bad choices I've made. I've also made a decision, a conscious decision, not to continue to perpetuate those bad choices. I have worked extremely hard to do the necessary things that the, will ensure that those bad choices will not continue in my life. Um, I have taken the necessary steps through sobriety to continue making the right choices. I must say that I am empowered by the support I received from the National Employment Law Project and the Clean Slate Program. They have been instrumental in advocating on my behalf. They have allowed me to have hope in a very difficult time in my life. I have gained strength 
in the knowledge that the battle that I'm fighting, and I believe that we all are fighting, is not only for employment, but for hope. It is a battle for life itself. It is comforting to know that we are not in this struggle by ourselves. Thank you. Next, we have more Evans. Good morning, everyone. My name is Maurice Evans. Uh, just like to start off saying I was going to write a speech for this presentation, but I'm going to speak from my heart and what I've experienced and went through as a journeyman electrical lineman. And for those of you that do not know what that is, it's someone who basically climbs the high voltage telephone poles and works on uh, the electricity for you guys. But I'd like to first start off thanking the National Employment Law Practice and the Clean Slate Program, Deborah Hoffman and Bell Law and Jesse Warner. And like I said, um, I have, have never been in any type of trouble throughout my career. And within the last year or so, I filled out uh, an uh, application wrong for an insurance uh, company that was insuring my uh, well-being. And I was terminated from PG&E uh, from my position, which I've worked for them off and on for 10 years. People that I've trained, taught the trade, you know, were given the opportunity to get on permanent. And they kept me working as a temporary employer, whereas though I did not receive any benefits or vacation and things of that nature. So I went to the NELP program and filed a complaint of discrimination, you know, on the reasoning that they did not hire me solely, I feel, because of the color of my skin. And it's just, you know, inappropriate. And for years I worked and worked hard for them and no avail to get on permanent at all. And I do feel that something needs to be done with the discrimination in these corporations and companies towards individuals that may get some type of charge that does not relate to the job that they're performing. And I would also like to say that, you know, for years I did not say anything. I just went on, did my job, and continued to work hard. But within the last year, you know, they have shown that there's been a big proportion of people that have been fired because of a criminal record and things that have been Latino and African-American males. And I'm here to say I know firsthand individuals that work for PG&E that have felonies and they are working permanently and I get a misdemeanor charge that I explain to my supervisor that I am going to get it expunged off my record. And I was terminated and told that I could not work there for two years, you know, prior to the two years to the date that I was terminated. And like I said, I'm really going to go and fight, you know, to try to get this changed because it shouldn't be that you serve your time to the community or do your time or whichever it is, that you still should have something hanging over your head, you know, when you go to try to get employment. 
And like I said, if the employers do not see that it's not only going to affect the individual who they're not hiring, it's going to affect the community at large. Because if someone cannot support and feed their family, they're going to turn to what they know or what they can do to get money. And, you know, it's going to affect everyone. You sitting up in your offices or wherever, you might just be the one walking down the street and that individual that had just gotten fired or was not given the opportunity to work, you might be the one that he might, you know, grab or attack. So it's not going to just affect the individual sitting here or the guy out on the corner, you know, selling newspapers. It's going to affect each and every one of us in this room today, tomorrow, your kids or your grandkids. And I just like to say everyone needs to get together and try to fight, you know, the injustices that these companies are doing because you have some type of charge or anything on your record. And that's all, you know, I would like to say. Thank you. Thank you, Maurice. Next we have Dorsey Nunn. God, I almost want to start off saying, my name is Dorsey Nunn, um, and give you a whole host of titles and things. I'm, a, uh, I'm the co-director of Legal Services for Prisons with Children. I'm a co-founder of All of Us Anon. I'm a, a co-founder of a drug program in East Palo Alto called Free at Last. And the question that we're wrestling with is so large that uh, it's hard for me to get through a presentation without cursing. I'm so passionate about what I do and my rights that it's hard for me to have a conversation that's even on an equal plane. So the first thing that I got to start off is most time that I step in the room, I'm not an ex-offender. I'm offended by people calling me that. Language matters. It matters whether or not people are actually going to consider us for employment. So this morning I jumped up and I'm prepared and excited to come to this conference and I found out that 75% of us are addicts. I found out that 80% of us are uh, illiterate. They even had another number tracking us for our homeless or our housing crisis. At this particular point, I run a million-dollar organization. I don't know if I wasn't a part of what they were describing or what they were misdescribing that I would have actually fished in that pool for qualified employers or employees. Uh, some parts of all of us are non got into a fight, not asking for anything extra. We were simply asking for fairness in the application process. So we came up with a strategy that we was going to put, push government officials to ban the box. It's structural in nature. You see it when you fill out your application. Have you been convicted of a felony? You see it when you fill out your application applying for a student loan, have you been convicted of a drug felony? You see it when you apply for public housing, have you been convicted of a felony or a drug felony? 
You can see it in all of those forms. Now, I'm really satisfied that people are willing to help in a do-clean slate. But what my fight is about is the full restoration of my rights and to end structural discrimination. I'm not asking for give me the preference at the job. I'm asking for just the fairness to let me compete on the same level as everybody else competes. I'm not asking for a handout. I'm just asking for an opportunity to get to some real issues. Now, the job that, that they often deny people has um, collateral consequences. The collateral consequences is it could also deny our kids an opportunity at health care. The jobs that they deny us when it comes to being black and brown, it could impact not just me, it could impact the economy of certain neighborhoods. There's so many of us unemployed, uh, underemployed. Uh, I used to go around to be a motivational speaker and tell people what you say in the event that is revealed that you have a felony. I did that for five years. I've been working in the field for 30. At the ass end of it, I was asking myself the question, do you tell them the truth or do you collect three or four weeks of employment? Because you need the money and not to have the money could force you into an awful situation. And everybody had kept telling me when I was going through my process, Tell them the truth. Have you ever seen that movie that says, tell me the truth, and somebody says, you can't stand the truth. <laughs> <laughs> well, when it comes to that box and that reality, that may be very well be the case. Because if all of those other things, you know, hey, bro, I take responsibility for everything I do, too. What I'm demanding is that society also take responsibility for what it does. For what it does. Because I recognize that the people I generally hang out with are formerly incarcerated people. Many of us have education. Many of us are talented. But to the most part, the only description we get is the ones that don't make it. I need to state flatly. I'm more than the sum total of your impressions. I'm more than the sum total of the statistics. I'm more than the sum total of other people's failures. Because there's some of us who actually make it. gave me one minute. And it's hard to sum up in one minute after serving a life sentence. So whatever people thought that I owed you that may be out there, at the point that I discharged off parole, 
I don't owe you anything. At the point that I discharge off probation, I don't owe you anything. And we will fight for the full restoration of my rights, including voting, including employment, including the ability to actually have housing, including adequate medical care when we incarcerated. We will fight every inch of this ground from this point forward. Because in all of us and none, our line is clearly drawn. Uh, at this particular point, uh, we think that we are qualified people to, owe, to have jobs, but every time that we get into the discussion about reentry, you never think about that some of us started out as entrepreneurs. <laughs> that some of us started out creating businesses. So I don't want you to fall short and think just uh, meager programs on reentry or cleaning my slate that you get to peek at and look at because we need real fundamental policy change is going to be enough to satisfy us. We're going to keep on pushing. And once again, I'm a formerly incarcerated person who's presently offended by being called an offender. You just well call me the person who ate the children and expect for me to get employment after you do that. Uh, my name is Dorsey. Uh, and I got a long bio. I want to know how come my turn is after a motivational speaker. <laughs> so my name is Simon Shamji. I am part of the uh, reentry unit in the Office of the Public Defender. I'm the director of specialty courts and reentry programs, of which Clean Slate is one. Um, Clean Slate came about about 10 years ago, um, thanks to Jeff. And, you know, that's not a traditional role of the public defender. The public defender is somebody who goes to court and fights vigorously on your behalf um, with criminal trials. And we saw that there were consequences to those convictions. There were consequences to those guilty pleas. And we wanted to address that. Um, the way that it affects individuals is they are denied public housing or um, general assistance and employment opportunities, student loans, um, licensure. And that was something that we really wanted to address. So here we are 10 years later and doing quite well. However, we have one attorney, because that, that's all the funding that we were able to get, to handle all of the San Francisco convictions. We have an attorney, we have a paralegal, and we have a support person who makes comprises clean slate. And when we were in the back, um, uh, Maurice sitting next to me said, you know, clean slate, we, you know, more people need to know about you all. So we're, we're in the tricky position of, of advertising, which is part of, of any good program, you know, to get that in there. But we have one attorney who does that, and, she, and, and a, a limited number of staff. So we are trying to get more funding. That's always um, something that we're trying to do. If there's anyone out there who wants to replicate our program, who, you know, grant writers, we, we invite everyone to help in this really great um, uh, program. So my job here today is to let you know um, just what exactly um, can you get rid of from your record. 
Um, there's some things that just stick and, and you can't get rid of them. And those are prison commitments. And there's exceptions. So if you've been to prison and you have a conviction, that conviction will stay with you. However, you can get a certificate of rehabilitation. And the way that you would do that is you would contact our office, and I'm going to go into how you do that, the practicality of, of contacting us and getting your case started with us. Um, is What you do is um, you fill out a letter to the judge. You write a letter to the judge, and you explain to the judge how you have rehabilitated. And that would involve things like I've been... The law requires that you are out of the system for seven years, that you weren't on parole or probation. You have no convictions for seven years. And then you write this letter to the judge that we would present to the judge, and they would generally include um, letters of recommendation, proof of employment, housing, things like that, and we present that to the judge. If the motion is granted, then um, it gets... Uh, process to the governor's office who would issue a pardon, and that is no noted on the rap sheet. Um, the other type of relief that's available to you is something called the expungement. So if you're convicted of a crime, and this includes felonies, a lot of people don't realize that serious felonies, including robbery, um, you know, assaults, these are all eligible for relief if you are granted probation. There are few exceptions to that, and, and there are certain sex offenses that are not eligible for an expungement. And so what does that mean, an expungement? That means that you are convicted of a crime. You either were convicted after trial or you pled guilty, and you've completed pro, uh, probation. You have to have gotten probation. And once you have completed probation, and you are not currently on parole or probation in another county and you have no pending warrants against you, either charges or warrants, then you're eligible for that relief. And if you successfully completed probation and there were no violations, then that um, case is, you're, you're, uh, the, the judge is mandated to grant that motion to expunge. And so what exactly happens when you get that off your record um, you have the legal right to say that you don't have that conviction and it's, and it's gone off your record. And there are certain exceptions to that, unfortunately. Um, and um, the, uh, the exceptions are for public office and um, for licensure. So the other type of um, relief that's available is called the seal and destroy. So if you're arrested of a crime, or you're, you're arrested and, and the charges are later dismissed against you, you can bring that motion to the judge, and you have to show that you're factually innocent of that offense. And that's a very, very, very high standard. Because even if you get your conviction dismissed and you can say that I've never been convicted before, that arrest is still on your record. And there are very there are very specific instances in which you can actually get your arrest record sealed as well. So the other, um, and, and you know, this is legalese, and I apologize for how boring it is. Um, I'll just get through a couple of more um, um, legal relief that's available to you, and then I'll, I'll 
talk to you about how you can contact us. Um, there's the early ter termination of probation, and if you're on probation and there are reasons why um, your probation should be terminated early, you get that great um, job. You, you have a housing situation that's being hampered because you're still on probation, and the ends of justice would be served if you um, uh, you know, got this probation terminated early, then the judge would grant that. Um, and the last is reduction of felony to a misdemeanor. There are times when you really don't want that felony to be on your record, um, and that can be done also while you're still on probation, and that's something else that we can help with as well. So that's sort of the what, um, what we do and what we can help with. You have to keep in mind that for our office to help, it has to be a San Francisco arrest or conviction. And if your arrest or conviction was in another county or in another state, then we actually have the resources that you would contact. We're the only public defender office in the nation that does this, which, which is a shame. Um, but there are other organizations that do that and that who we partner with, and we would give you the appropriate referral. So how do you find us, Maurice? We're, try we're doing our best. And so the way that you can find us is every day of the week, ex well, except Fridays, we are in the community and we're available to you um, through our walk-in clinics. And there's a red um, little handout uh, that says want a clean slate in your package, and there's some available upstairs. And it lists the days and times that we are available. And you can walk in, and we will go through um, the process with you. We have on Mondays, we're at the Arriba Juntos office, um, which is on Mission Street. We're there from 2 to 4. On Tuesdays, you can come to the Public Defender's Office. Not everyone wants to come close to the Hall of Justice when they're, when they're done with their time. So if that doesn't work for you, you can come to the Up From Darkness Office on Wednesdays, on the first and third Wednesdays of each month, or on, uh, at the Village Community Center um, and, uh, on Sunnydale on the fourth Wednesday of the month. And on Thursdays, you can come to the Southeast Community Center. And, and the way that the process works is you come in, you fill out this application, we get a copy of your rap sheet, it's $5, you can get it ahead of time at, at the police department of the Hall of Justice. Again, probably not a place you might want to go, so we can take care of that for you. We can, if you can't afford that fee, we can help get a fee waiver. Um, and once the application is complete, you can just walk it in at any time to one of these clinics and, and drop it to us. You can mail it. It's, it's available online at sfpublicdefender.org. You can download it and submit it to us, and then we'll do the rest. And there's some work that will, might need to be done from you, but um, we, will, we will do the rest for you. So thank you. Hi again, I'm Jesse Warner with the National Employment Law Project. I'm going to speak to you a bit about some employment rights that people with criminal records do in fact have. And then at the end of the panel, everybody's going to get a chance to kind of give you some clothing thoughts or advice um, as we head into the next um, part of the program. The National Employment Law Project is a national organization based in New York, and we do work on behalf of low-wage workers on a whole wide range of worker issues. So you have a chance to check out the website at www.nelp.org. 
Here in the Oakland office, we have the Second Chance Labor Project, and we really focus on the barriers to employment that come into play when a person has a criminal record. Now, here in California, one in five people have some kind of arrest or conviction that will show up when a background check is done. It's one in five people. And we know from statistics that have a report, rather, that was done that about 80% of employers are now doing background checks. This is up substantially since 9-11. It's in part because of federal laws that have been passed that require a background check, but also in part to just the, the access and the proliferation of access that's a, that comes with the Internet and just how much easier it is to get public record information out there. There are consumer protection and civil rights laws that provide a source of protection for workers with criminal records. I'm going to start with the consumer protection laws. And again, there's information on a flyer that's in your packet and also some flyers upstairs for folks who want to go up to the resource room later. Now, most employers, most private employers, can only get access to a criminal background check by going through these private background check companies. And there's thousands of them, hundreds, and they're growing. This is a profitable business. And a lot of times these reports aren't wholly accurate, and a lot of times these reports report more than they're allowed to. And we have some specific protections here in California that are a lot better than what the Federal Consumer Reporting Act allows. Now, under the Federal Consumer Reporting Act, no matter where you are in the United States, if an employer is going to use the information on this background check that they have done to take an, quote-unquote, adverse action, meaning they're not going to hire you or fire you because of the information that's on that report, they're required to provide you with a copy of it. Now, this is important because it gives the person who may be not hired or fired a chance to check if that report is accurate and whether or not, you know, the information there really is information pertaining to, the, to them. In California, there's some special protections in that you're allowed to get a copy of it even if they're not going to take this adverse action. Now, if they're going to do a private background check, they have to get your permission to do it. They can't just go out and get that information. You have to sign that it's okay for them to do it. And there's a box that's required in California for you to check and say you want to get a copy of whatever report might be generated about you. And it's really important to be reminded, just like your credit you want to know what's on whatever report is going to be given to an employer that's going to show any bit of information, especially if it's going to show criminal background check information, and you want it to be accurate. Now, in California, we have some extra protections that aren't in the Federal Credit Reporting Act, and this includes the fact that these private companies are not allowed to report any arrests, any arrests that do not lead to a conviction, if you have an arrest that's still pending, they could maybe put that information, but they can't put any information at all about an arrest that did not lead to a conviction. We also have an extra protection in that these private background check companies cannot report information about convictions that occurred more than seven years ago. Now, we know, specifically in some of the cases that are here, that sometimes these background check companies are reporting information that they're not allowed to under California law, 12-year-old convictions, you know, older convictions. And there are some protections 
under California law to enforce um, a suit against these background check companies. And we have um, folks who are willing to help people who might have a background check that's violated this law. So I also want to talk about the civil rights protections that are available to workers with a criminal record. And these are federal protections. Many of you probably know about the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It's an act passed to protect people from discrimination based upon some protected classes, such as race, gender, religion, national origin. And Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is about employment. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is the federal agency that enforces violations of Title VII and other laws around employment. And for many years now, it's been recognized in the courts, and the EEOC has also recognized that there is a disparate impact when an employer uses a criminal background check and a criminal conviction as the basis to hire or not, to not hire, rather, or fire an individual. Now, we know there's a disparate impact because we know the criminal justice system has a disproportionate impact on communities of color, and we know specifically national statistics showed way back in the 70s and still show now that there is a disproportionate impact on African-American and Latino job applicants. Now, what I mean by disparate impact claim is where a policy that on its face appears neutral, we don't hire people because they have a conviction, actually has a disparate impact on a community that's protected under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So again, we're looking in this case at a race discrimination claim on behalf of an African-American or Latino applicant to a job who is being denied because they're criminal record. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. As we know, employers are allowed to ask about criminal convictions. What Title VII blanketly provides protection against blanketly is if an employer has a bar that's automatic. No persons with a conviction can be hired. That's violating Title VII. But what it does require, the EOC does require, is that there's an individualized inquiry by that employer. It requires that they look at what the offense was and whether or not it's actually related to the duties that the person will perform. So we want to see that it is, in fact, related to the job. So maybe if you have a conviction for embezzlement, we don't want you being um, handling all the books. There's a lot of other offenses that we know are used, being used by employers as a bar to employment that have nothing to do with their jobs. And these are examples um, and stories that have been told here today that we're working to bring through the EEOC process now. Now, not only do they need to make sure that the conviction is job-related, they also need to know that it's relatively recent. How long has it been? You know, and is that conduct at all relevant to how this person would perform in the job now? And those are the factors that an employer is required to consider, and so often we know they are not. And we're, we're starting to bring here in the Bay Area and, the, and Northern California more generally claims of discrimination through the EEOC process. It's an administrative process, and it's not by any means the answer, but it's a way for us to start challenging employer policies and getting the word out to employers that 
we're not accepting the status quo, that we need to see them changing, opening up their policy, following the law around this, around the issue of considering a background, a criminal background. Now, if you have, want to get information about the project or think you might have a, a, a good case, there is, again, a flyer in the packet, has a number for our project and a way to get a hold of me. And we can have a conversation and follow up to see if it is a good way. We, in addition to bringing claims through the EOC process, which, again, it's a federal agency. Things don't move as quickly as we'd like them to. But we also can do other things, demand letters, other things to help move this process along. And I also just want to really give some props to folks here at this table. The clean slate process is such an important process as you're getting out to get a job. The ability, once you've had convictions that are dismissible and are, are dismissed, gives you a chance to answer no on applications. It's under the um, regulations here in California. Employers become barred to make that inquiry. So it's important if you can get your convictions dismissed to do that. I also really want to give a nod to all of us or none. All of us or none is a great partner of the National Employment Law Project. We work together hand in hand on a number of projects and I have to say that um, they provide inspiration and give us the opportunity to reach, reach um, communities as well as to provide some, the extra legal support, you know, this mumbo jumbo that we can talk, but also really get people's rights enforced. And also just want to remind everybody, these are my parting words and then we'll move down the table, about talking to folks in the community, talking to everybody you know if you get a chance to remind them that they do have these rights and they should be asking for them. And on the employment discrimination issue to reach out to the National Employment Law Project if you have any questions. Uh, I guess my, my parting words would be um, something that uh, came to mind that um, someone sent me an email and at the bottom of the email um, it stated it was to this effect that um, it's a thousand miles begins with one step. And uh, for me, um, it's not giving up on myself in spite of the adversity that is encountered. Uh, it's important to um, take that step in the right direction. Um, sometimes it's um, very difficult um, when you're going through uh, those adversities to see the um, light of the end, end of the tunnel or to see what your effort will bring, bring forth. But in my case, uh, is the realization that um, uh, by taking that extra step, I not only um, was making a difference in my life, but the difference I'm also making is impacting others. Oh, I'd just like to say Everyone out here in the audience, if you know someone or even yourselves, go handle your business and go down and get your record clear, cleaned and cleared. It's not an easy task, but it's kind of tedious running back and forth, but it's well worth it. And it will help you and your families out in the long run. Um, what I want to say is that as we're here having this 
great day of discussion about reentry and how it works, and it works if we have the right resources and the commitment of the community. Um, that we also think about something else that's also happening. Um, earlier today, there was reference made to civil society and how we need these programs to address this. And something that I feel that needs to be addressed is the over-incarceration of individuals in this country. We lead the world in incarceration rates. And I think that it is time that we do something about it. Reentry is, is needed. It's something that's going to happen. It's part of society. And that's something that we also need to look at is, do we really need to send the number of people that we are incarcerating? Does that really reflect civil society? And I really think that it's time for us to think about that. Sometimes when I'm passionate, people think I'm angry. <laughs> uh, I also remember a quote, uh, that power concedes nothing without a demand. Uh, the sleeping giant is the large number of people who are formerly incarcerated in this state. We exist by the tens of thousands, the large number of people who have a conviction history or uh, something on the record. We're 20% of the population. I would say that we organize. Uh, we got the box banned in San Francisco because we made a demand. We got the box banned in Alameda County because we made a demand. We got the box banned in St. Paul, Minneapolis, in the Twin Cities because we made a demand. We got the box banned in East Palo Alto because we made a demand. We got the box banned in the state of Washington, uh, I think it's Portland, because we made a demand. I'm telling every formerly incarcerated person in this place we are more than the sum total of being a client. We are full human being, and we have the right to make demands on government and on society that actually leads to public safety and to our well-being also. So, like, if you're sitting around and you're thinking that somebody is going to actually give you something, we may be wrong. We could be going to the middle of a depression, and the jobs they're talking about may be unavailable to not only us. We could be competing with uh, employment issues on a magnitude that haven't been seen since the early 30s. So if you're sitting in this audience and you're a formerly incarcerated person, be prepared to actually argue for your space to exist. Thank you.
Hello, everybody. Don't y'all leave yet. You got to go. My name is Frank Williams. Hello, everybody. I am the director of the Senior Ex Offender Program. I was asked to come, and uh, thanks to Jessica, the Public Defender Office, the Sheriff Department. Uh, I'd like to give thanks to my mentor and my friends and family that's out here, because all of y'all are my family. I, too, am a formerly incarcerated person that turned my life around 12 years ago. And uh, I'm a man of many hats. Uh, I'm the director of the Senior Ex Offender Program. I'm an author. I have a book called Knowledge and Poetic View working on a CD that's soon to be out. But the reason why I do that type of work is because I care about those that's incarcerated and those that's formerly incarcerated. And right now we're doing great work to work with the seniors that's 50 and over. We need to put some attention on them as well as our youth. So I'm going to do a couple of pieces, and I hope you all get the message. It's not to entertain you, but it's to give you a message. Because we're living in times of adversities and uncertainties, doing times with some of our beliefs are weak. And some of us are struggling just to make it through the week because of the issues. The issues that causes allergies due to being conformed to the varieties of atrocities that we face on a day-to-day -day basis forming our realities. And in all actualities, how do one find ways to enjoy life today and feel a little peace? See, out here in these streets, we have our youth that's dying, and there's a lot of violence going on, and we need to reach one and teach one. We need to take them by their hands, and in some cases, yeah, we got to walk them through the ropes. I just lost a nephew that just got shot in the head, and I just lost a close friend of mine that just got shot in the head, and all this violence just has to stop, and we have to unite together and really make this thing work with this reentry. A gunshot rang loud within the urban streets. A 17-year-old black male hit the concrete. And it sounded as if a hundred-pound sack of potatoes hit the ground. And people were startled, and people were scurrying, and some people was running from, and some people was running to the scene, the scene, the scene, the scene where this crime took place. The scene, the scene, the scene, the scene where this young black male met his fate. He met his maker due to another's whose misplaced hatred caused this young black male to lose his life. This misplaced hatred that caused a family and friend to not understand, but left to grieve and cry, questioning, why, oh why, my baby, my baby, a mother's cry. While those of us gathered around, questioning God, questioning these streets, and questioning ourselves, if, if only I had her, as we sigh, as the tears fell from our eyes. Not understanding, not understanding, not understanding how these streets continue to steal away the lives, you know. Street life hustle the lives and take away the souls. And that was the start of you. That's to get your mind thinking because we, we really need to do this reentry. We need to be in the prisons. We need to get community inside these prisons and do such as a good job as we're doing right here in San Francisco with our sheriff department that allow community to come inside and serve these people. <laughs> it's 
See, I do this work because of the passion. We all are doing this work because of our passion. There's many of us in this room that's doing this work because of our passion. Uh, once you learn your purpose, then it's not about how much you make. It's about how many lives you touch. And there's many people in this room today that touch my life. And it's an honor and privilege to be here before you. And I'm going to end this with my signature piece. I wrote this piece. It's called My Body's Too Heavy to Hang from a Tree. Uh, I have an MA in leadership. Uh, when I first got, got out of jail and prison, I had nothing but God. And today I'm a certified addiction treatment counselor. Today I'm a director of a program. I have an MA in social work, and I'm working on my Ph.D. in criminal justice. And the reason why I'm making this statement, this statement is really for those who are here that's formerly incarcerated, that's just got out of prison, you may be on probation or parole to let you know that, just like other speakers that was up here, that we can do it, you can do it. I'm also 12 years clean and sober. So, yes, I am a grateful recovering addict, and I don't have any shame in saying who I am because today I am a man. My body is too heavy to hang from a tree. My mind is too deep to be brainwashed against humanities. My shoulders are too strong to give up on life behind issues. My arms are too strong. My legs are too strong. My desires are too strong to give up on you and me. For I am one of the seeds created to be. For I am one of the ones sent forth to awaken dead eyes, to motivate forsaken souls, and to share knowledge with those who are lost. Open the minds and encouraging the vulnerable, the abandoned, and the despondent so that they will rise. Rise above their issues. Rise above the surface of social ills. Rise above the agenda of a worn-out paradigm of conditioned beliefs, of conditioned ideologies that causes one to be left without, confusing in disbelief, you see. My body's too heavy to hang from a tree. And my body's too heavy to hang from a tree. Designed when my mind is proportional, a protagonist at best in this conquest that was never optional. So I stand tall and I protest using education and elocution to repute the genocide and executions of human beings from the topologies of schemes such as medication, frustration, and alienation. Subliminal messages sent forth to eliminate those who haven't assimilated. So I speak out. So I speak out, you see, because our bodies are too heavy to hang from trees. And my body's too heavy to hang from a tree. And you cannot assassinate the truth, and the truth cannot be killed. My mind became heavy as I learned to unlock the doors to ignorance. My mind became uplifted when I found that life could be lived harmoniously. And my mind became enlightened when I found that there's no need for poverty, and that there's no place for envy, and that greed is one of the tools used to enslave, consumes the souls of restless beings that have so much energy that they lose focus of life's most precious reality, which is you and me. See, life is more than a game of chances. Life is more than do or die circumstances, because the one that stands make it. Because life is bigger than any one person issues, issues that have been used to captivate you and mesmerize you and defeat you. If you can be tricked into shutting down, isolating, and medicating, then you too can elevate yourself from the masses of fools who are out there clowning themselves. Then you too can emulate those who are still the fiery flame of bias, discrimination, contradiction, and the torture chambers. Ah, but you can reach a lofty place in the afterlife 
But in this life, you should fight for the cause and freedom for us all, for every light she shine. And the reality of life is to live, live in the glow and reap the benefits provided by you by your maker. For your maker did not make a mistake. For all there is, is for you. See, my body's too heavy to hang from a tree. And I bow down on the one that has a power greater than me. And from life interpretations I've gained, knowledge, strength, and determination to succeed, you see. My body's too heavy to hang from a tree. Enjoy yourselves. Get your lunch. Thank you very much. They call Frank Williams the chairman. Of course, and we know why. I have a few quick uh, announcements to make before we break uh, for lunch. Please pick up your guide of the new 2008-2009 resource guide. Be the first one to have one of these in your hand. Take copies for clients, people in jail or prisons, friends. Uh, you never know when you might need one of these. Um, I also wanted to uh, mention that we have an amazing banner upstairs, a collection of letters that the Safe Communities Ranchery Council have received from people in jail and prisons across the state, uh, thanking us uh, for the resource guide. We also have a voter registration table. Of course, we can't tell you who to vote for, but you can register to vote. And if you're not in California, you're not on parole or uh, in prison, you can vote. Upstairs is a table full of community resources. Please take them freely. They're there for you. There's also a beautiful quilt that's made by the women of the Rising Voices of the Sheriff's Women Reentry Center. These women are formerly incarcerated and engaged in the Rising Voices program, so check out the quilt. Uh, we have a couple of VIPs in the audience. I'd like to, you're all VIPs, but a couple I'd like to introduce. Uh, we have my good friend, uh, Public Defender Jeffrey Toma here from Solano County, District Attorney David Paulson, and Patrick Duarte, the Director of the Health and Social Services. They're also working uh, around reentry. We also have individuals here from Alameda County and San Mateo County. Welcome and thank you. Uh, we are going to be breaking for lunch, returning at 1 p.m. for our tremendous keynote speaker. Make sure you're back here at 1. Uh, please pick up your box lunch in the front. There's turkey or vegetarian, uh, vegetarian and a drink. Uh, please eat outside on the lovely gardens. It's a beautiful day outside, but don't forget to come back. Please compost and recycle your waste. Uh, there are receptacles in the garden. Uh, and I want to acknowledge uh, Global Gourmet Catering that's provided a generous discount in support of the third annual reentry summit. Another private business stepping up to the plate to support us. So we'll see you back here at 1 p.m. Thank you. Welcome back to Vista L.A. You may have heard about Homeboy Industries, created by Father Greg Boyle in 1988 to help at-risk youth, many formerly involved with gangs, redirect their lives. Now, Homeboy Industries is celebrating 20 years and has even more to celebrate with a new facility north of downtown L.A. The organization continues to offer hope to those who don't have it and to create a real sense of kinship in the community. In its new 21,000-square-foot complex, Homeboy Industries continues its commitment to affect real change in the lives of individuals affiliated with gangs by offering them guidance and support. It's given me a chance to uh, focus and view things in, different, in a different way. This is like a new beginning for me. I love it. This program was created 20 years ago under the leadership, vision, and compassion of Father Greg Boyle. I started to bury kids and, and people in the parish when I was pastor at Dolores Mission 
said, what can we do? So the first thing we did is we started a school and that led to jobs and so then we started our own business. Creating jobs has been a focus since its inception. In fact, their first business, Homeboy Bakery, is still going strong today. But getting to the root of gang violence is the top priority. Homeboy now provides counseling, therapy and educational training, but that only begins to scratch the surface. Here, former rivals work side by side in peace. The reason? Father Greg's approach. It's about recognizing that hopeful kids don't join gangs. So if you could change that equation, suddenly you've changed everything. But gang-related homicides have been cut in half. And, and this place announces the message of kinship. We've discovered there is no us and them, there's just us. When I came up here, Father Greg, he opened up his arms. And I've been here 15 months now. 27-year-old Eric Joshua joined a gang when he was just 12. Raised in a broken home, the gang became his family. And as a result, he spent the majority of his youth in and out of jail. Eric says he felt completely lost until Father Greg gave him an opportunity in the homeboy bakery division. It was new to me because I didn't know how to cook. I didn't know how to bake. Homeboy sent Eric to baking school at L.A. Trade Tech where he earned a trade certificate and now, for the first time in his life, he sees a future. I love it. I just want to move up. This gave me a lot of hope. This is my new home right here. Three years ago, Luis Rivera was looking for work with no success. He came to Homeboy to receive job-related services. I started with the tattoo removal. A year after that, uh, I got offered a job by Father Boyle. And I've been in the bakery for two years already. I got a five-man crew. I got my certificate also for uh, health and safety. If it wasn't for here, I wouldn't be the changed person I am now. Because, you know, they do care about you here. All of the programs and services are free under one condition. This is a rehab center. You know, it's like a gang rehab center. It's just like a drug rehab center. It's not for those who need help. It's only for those who want it. If you're engaged in uh, gang activity, come back when you're ready. Spending half his life in prison, 46-year-old Robert Ponce was ready to turn his life around. I started when I was 11 years old. The gang I, I was uh, brought up in, my father was from it and his father was from it. Did everything that, that was opposite of wanting to do right. Today, with a fresh outlook on life, Robert has discovered a passion for baking. That desire came in and I wanted to bake. I wanted to see people eat something and say, wow, that's good. The highest aspiration I have is to be a chef. Another major business component to Homeboy Industries is Homegirl Cafe, run by former female gang members. Offering traditional Latino dishes with a contemporary twist, the eatery began a few years ago as a 26-seat cafe in Boyle Heights. Today, it has tripled the size and business is booming. My mom was on drugs, my dad was an alcoholic. It was hard growing up. When I told my story to one of the case managers here, and she was right away like, well, we have an opening at the cafe, do you want it? I was like, yes. <laughs> so I've been here ever since, and I'm glad. Candace Escalera is also taking parenting classes at Homeboy, which she says has had a positive effect on her and her four children. Even her children's grades have drastically improved. Her son recently won a citywide essay contest and met Mayor Villaragosa after writing about how proud he is of his mother. Everybody's got problems. And so that won't ever change. Nobody in this room is without them. But how we see them is, is really kind of the key thing. Father Greg reveals that there has been one major challenge over the years. To get employers willing to hire these folks. So we really have to get the private sector people to kind of say, I'm not asking that you transform your whole workforce. 
one slot. That's all, you know. And if enough employers started to do that, they'd discover, oh, this guy's great, and he's eager, and he's, you know, he shows up every day. The minute you start to know people, you can't hang on to your misconception or your hatred. Looking back 20 years, the cornerstone of Homeboy Industries is the power of change and how broken lives can be rehabilitated and restored. I feel like air today and I'm proud of myself today. I can look in the mirror and say that I know something about me. It's, it's taking me uh, to a, a place where now I can say, you know, I'm finally here. I'm most proud of how enemies become friends. Now, does that always happen? Yes. Can I think of any exceptions? No. It, it happens here in the most gracious, extraordinary, unmistakable way. Good afternoon and welcome back. This morning we talked about shifting the paradigm, thinking out of the box. What's the worst thing that could happen when we dream and we reimagine and re-envision what is possible? Too often, our solutions are boxed in before we even truly begin to dream. The Safe Communities Reentry Council wanted not only a keynote speaker who would encapsulate the spirit as we go forward, because there's a lot of work to be done, but represented not only what was possible, not only what could be accomplished, but if we soared our wings and stretched our wings to the greatest potential, what could be possible? San Francisco is very fortunate to have so many dedicated community providers, service providers. And I think in, in many ways, we are a city like no other. Delancey Street is probably one of the best examples of how you can take a simple idea, and they didn't call it a reentry back then, there was no fancy name for it. It was simply giving hope. And so today, we wanted to bring to you not only the concept of reentry, but also showing how reentry was being achieved and worked at in other communities. I'm very, very proud uh, to introduce the second in command at Homeboy. Industries, Homeboy Industries was an idea that started in the mind of Father Greg Boyle. He saw too many of his parishioners leaving this life too early, too many funerals that he was performing, too many mothers and fathers who were saying goodbye to their children as a result of violence. And so one person decided to take a huge step. It wasn't easy. There were a lot of ups and downs. 
He had to struggle mightily against all the powers that be. He didn't get a lot of support. But he endured because he believed in what he was doing. And it really is a testament to the power of a person. Because with that idea, he was able to mobilize a community. Homeboy Industries has now grown to a multi-service center. Everything from counseling to mental health to job training, education, you name it, they provide it. They also created their own business model, as you heard on the video. And that business model has now blossomed into five industries. And just to use that term, homeboy industries, I think represents a change in thinking. It's true that with the retiring workforce in this country, we will face a great labor shortage. We already are in the years ahead. Yet, we do not take advantage of one of the greatest workforces that we have available, and that is formerly incarcerated individuals. Still, we pay, was it five or ten cents? Not a living wage. Still, when people are released from prison, they have no ability to accumulate savings, nothing from which they can draw upon. And in terms of work, we know that it's been an incredible challenge for a formerly incarcerated person to find work. And what Homeboy Industries has done is said, you know what? We're not going to be deterred by those things. Instead, we're going to go out, dream, create, and build what we think is possible. Joey Ray Lucero, I'm going to let him come out here and tell his own story because I could not do it justice. But I will tell you two things about him that uh, he won't tell you himself, and that is that uh, yesterday was Joey's 31st birthday, and so we're very grateful that he came all the way here to be here on uh, the day after his birthday. Um, and the second thing I thought I'd, I'd mention, too, is not only does he help run Homeboy Industry, but he, he, he also is an actor, which is an interesting profession, if you think about it. And he played, you know, they have all these, uh, these TV shows, um, some about prisons, and he played uh, in the Gridian Gang. This is a, a film, a true story, starring The Rock, um, where uh, they had a, a, a football team uh, in a prison yard that, you know, shot up and uh, won uh, uh, a couple of uh, major competitions. Um, but he, he was uh, one, of the, one of the actors that was featured uh, in that film. And I think once you get a chance to meet him, uh, you'll definitely uh, see why. Because he's somebody who not only has the heart to do the work that he does every day, but he has the dedication and commitment. And he comes from a place where he understands not only what it's like 
but what needs to be done. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a warm San Francisco welcome to Joey Way Lucero. How you ladies and gentlemen doing? Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much. 30. Did you tell? Um, anyways, my name is Joey Ray, uh, third generation gang member. I still love this, dude. I go, you know, went from Corcoran Shoe to now I'm standing in, in San Francisco speaking about gangs. I love this. Um, my father was from my neighborhood. My grandfather was from my neighborhood. My uncles, I have one aunt that was not from my neighborhood. My older brother from my neighborhood. My aunt's from my, I mean, my sister's from my neighborhood. So it was, uh, traditionally passed down per se. Um, my mother, blonde hair, blue eyes, stole cold, flower child. Now on the other side, my dad, which I don't throw around too much, um, has been a member of a certain prison organization for the last 37 years. Um, and those of you that are familiar, that have done time, I don't like to throw the names around, but he is from the MA and he still is to this day. So as a little kid, he, he, he ingrained my character to be contradictive in the sense of say please and thank you, yes ma'am, no sir, never disrespect women or children, but on the flip side of that, here, go ahead and take this heroin up there and make sure you sell it while you're playing Donkey Kong Jr. Things like that I took up, you know, next thing you know, the first time I was arrested, I was nine years old. And this is a trip because there was a, uh, there was an ex-crip, his name was Mr. Freeman, and he used to take us out to projects every Saturday. I would miss Saturday cartoons in the morning. That was big for me. So they would take us out of the projects and play football. Well, he was cool as hell, man. I had took this weed that I had stole from my mom's pantry. Those of you that are old flower children that are in here, you know, the four-finger dimes, right? My mom always used to say that. Anyways, now it's like this big or something. But, but I took this weed, and I took it to school. And I remember going into the cafeteria, and I said, Hey, Mr. Freeman, man, check this out. Look, look, look what I got. And he took me into the principal's office and he called the police. He did the right thing. But what he did to me is he justified everything that my father had already told me. Anybody in an authoritative position can never know what goes on at home. You can't tell them anything. From teachers to counselors. And there were some counselors, man, that, that probably could have changed my life. And I wouldn't be talking to you now coming from a, a, a 13 and a half years incarcerated. If I would have been able to open up. But I couldn't tell you what was going on, that they were slamming dope in the house, that they were selling heroin out the house, that all my dad's friends were all his homeboys and they were all big homies. You know what I mean? Because if I told somebody that at school, what are they going to do to me? They're going to take me and put me in CPS and take me out the home. And as fucked up as my home was, slamming dope and being on heroin, that was my mama and that was my daddy. You only got one of them. So I justified when to tell the truth and when not to tell the truth. And a little boy or a little girl should never have to, never have to do that. But it is what it is in the projects, right? At the age of 12, I was run over forward and backwards. I got a big scar on my head and I got a big scar down my stomach. They took my spleen out. I stayed in the hospital about three weeks in a coma. Four days after I got released from the hospital, this individual that ran me over was killed. What has happened was my father had, obviously, this individual messed up in prison. My father put a whatever out on him. 
This individual lived, found out that I was my father's son, and took it out on me. Well, let me say this. I was arrested and charged with murder. Whether I did it or not, I'm not a killer, man. I didn't kill nobody. But because what was taught to me, you mind your own, you live long, you don't say shit. You don't speak about what you see. And because of my belief system, that's exactly what I did. So I did 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and right before my 19th birthday in the California Youth Authority. Now, the only positive thing about that was I graduated high school before I was 17. You know what I mean? I don't want to be a dumbass gang member. It's cold. I got I to gotta tell you guys this one. You know, those of you that have been busted, you ever, you know, you, them dudes that are controlling the yard, that, hey, you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, homie, you're going to do this. There's the same dude at mail call. Hey, Droopy, can you read this for me, dog? <laughs> and I, I should have been like, yo, um, your lady is sleeping with the milkman, dog. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> but um, you got to put humor in it. But to, to be real, I mean, I never got to go to junior high. I never got to actually go to high school. Like, I go to these schools, man, and I, and I tell them, you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't get to go. Like, sometimes I do these little keynote, the, 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 what is it, the winter formal, prom. And I, I mean, first time I did it in South Central, I was so happy to be there. I wanted to be in, in the crowd with the kids. I was like, dude, i never seen this shit live. Like, I was excited. Like, I wanted to be a kid again. But I never got to do any of those things. Never. never. You know what's cool? You know, you, you live, you learn, right? Teach their own. But those, those are some of the things that I missed. To dance with a girl at, at, at the school dance and how I used to see on TV, they just put the ruler in between them and stuff like that. I mean, I never even got to do that. I never even got to ditch school and make that choice for myself and not go. <laughs> because I wasn't able to go. When I came home, man, I was 19 and I had left when I was 12. So you can imagine the respect we know now is false. But at that time, to walk in, that handshake, what's up, homie? Man, you, you did your shit, dog. You didn't tell nobody nothing. You didn't snitch, fool. It's the homie droopy. What's up, my boy? And as shallow as that sounds, man, that's all I had to base myself on. That was my... my That was who I was. That was my self-esteem. That was my love. That was my discipline. That was everything. And when I came home, my boys, Crystal Meth had just tore a new, in 1996, Crystal Meth tore a new asshole into my neighborhood. Coming home, people are tweaking. You know what I mean? Some of my homeboys were dead. Some of them doing life, strung out on heroin. Some of them had moved on, actually, were going to college and stuff. And when I came home, I started going to Grossmont J.C., those of you that know football, Akili Smith, Darren Hall, um, went on there. Uh, Akili Smith just came back from AAA ball from the Sox. We were going to Grossmont Junior College. And here comes this essay. You know, my whole body's covered in ink. I didn't do the whole everything else, arms and the face, none of that shit. But I come walking onto the football field because I had two dreams, play professional football or work at the San Diego Zoo because I loved animals. I swear to God. So I signed up, you know, I did my whole little thing, got my little 13 units, sociology 114, speech 122, uh, math 101. I had to take a couple of, you know, physical education because I wanted to play football. So I remember when we were doing the running, came on, we were doing the 40. And they had me do the 40 twice. And I was like, yeah, I was, I was spitting on it. I was running a 4440. They were like, nah, this is an essay. This essays don't run 4440s. It doesn't happen. It's not real. 
did it again. I ended up finishing out with a with a four or five. But I, you know, I made the practice squad. I made the first two cuts. But see, the thing was, is in my car, I was heated because when I came home from California Youth Authority, I wasn't gangbanging anymore. In a 30-block radius, if you were selling dope in my neighborhood, I'm sorry, but there was a higher power. You were going to give up 30%. And that's what I started doing. Those of you that are familiar with the 186 law, show of hands, everybody, no? 186 law, basically get all gang members off whether they did it or not. Lock them up, throw away the damn key. I was one of the first hundred to be uh, charged in that. And just to give you a little, just a small version of it, because I had no idea about this shit, none. Christmas night, 1997, was under the influence of alcohol. Um, one of my homeboys, his name is Wino, may he rest in peace now. Um, John is dead and so is sleeping. Another three that were in the car with us. Thank God I'm still alive, huh? I jump out the car, my homeboy Wino's fighting. It's Christmas night, man, this dude, he just, what he did is he urinated on the side of somebody's house. And if I was in the house, I'd have came out and whooped his ass too. But because that's what happened, I run over there, six or seven guys on him. All right, cool, we're going to get our ass whooped. So be it, that's my boy. Well, there was like 20 guys in the house. They came out and they stomped the hell out of us. Long story short, in the projects, two of my boys come in and they see if one of them has been running for like six murders. He's on America's Most Wanted. His respect for us was to just shoot everybody that was hurting us, basically jumping us. Like my respect to take that ass whooping for my homeboy because I'm not going to leave him down. That's the way he did it, but he took it to another level, and they just started blasting. Long story short again, sitting in the county jail, five attempted murders in a mayhem. And I'm saying to myself, damn, I got my ass whooped. How the hell did I do five attempted murders in a mayhem? And that's when I learned, that's when I learned about the 186 law, 186, 22A, 22B, 22C, and I think they're going to add on the rest of the alphabet pretty soon. I was guilty by association. Yeah, I was guilty by association. I didn't wake up one day and say, oh, shit, I want to be a gang member. It was, for me, it was traditional. It was family. Yeah, as I got older, I knew what was right and wrong. No doubt about that. I always took responsibility for the things that I did. I just couldn't see myself double striker facing 88 to life. I was like, God damn, 88 to life? Like, I wanted to stand up and tell the truth. Like, look, this is what I did. This is why I did it. And that's it. Who shot? I can't tell you, but I can tell you what I did. After two years of fighting it in the county jail, man, and uh, a lot of BS in between that time, I ended up getting six years flat. I went through Donovan Chino, and I, I hit Corcoran Shoe. And let me tell you, I'd never been prejudiced in my entire life. I grew up, it was blacks, whites, Asians. We were all fucking, all of us were getting food stamps and government cheese. We all were. I wouldn't give a damn. So I didn't ever say, oh, I hate black people, or I hate white people, whatever. I was from my neighborhood, and if you weren't from my neighborhood, I didn't give a shit about you, period. Color didn't play nothing into it for me. And I thank God my daddy never pushed that on me either, never pushed that race stuff on me. When I hit the prison system, man, you know, the segregation, it's always like that. You play yours. But I see my people, what's up, my boy? I'm good, I'm gone. What's going on? I can't fuck with you right now, but I'll hit you a little bit later. That's how it was, no matter what race it was. I hit Corker and Shoe. Grown-ass man was scared to death every single day. Had a 16-month shoe term. I had never seen that in my life. Swahili, German, Spanish, Arabic, every, everything you can think of. No warning shots. I was just like, damn, you know what I mean? And it's all concrete. Where the, the ball is going to go? They're going to bounce out. They're eventually going to hit one of us. But I seen dudes in there, man, kill other dudes because of race. Like this north and south thing. 
was brought up to be a southerner. I'm supposed to hate these guys from the north. I don't understand it. You know what I'm saying? Aren't they Latino too? You know, it's just a lot of things that you don't, you can't say out in the open, because if you're not one mind, one accord with the cause, you become the opposition. Like that, no questions asked. They, they don't give a damn. To put myself out there, after about 16 months into the shoe, I was asked to do something from somebody. There was no paperwork on it. It was hearsay. Well, those of us that have been in the game know damn well. If there ain't no damn paperwork, homie, you can't do shit. Well, this individual was somebody. And my celly was somebody, too. Came off of death row in 77 before it got overturned in 78. This old man, used to, he taught me a lot of stuff. And they asked me to do something to him. And that's when I found out that I wasn't a killer again. And when they came to rack the doors the next day, you know they was going to torpedo me. So I had to lock it up, go through a debriefing process. And let me tell you, that's the most degrading thing in the whole entire world. At that time, I thought, I'm not a snitch, I'm not a child molester, and I'm not a rapist. But what I couldn't do was kill my celly because he was a righteous old man, cool old man. But because I couldn't kill him, what happens to me? So I went through the little debriefing process, and I swear to God, I cried every night. I felt like I had been in love with this woman for 15 years, and she'd been sleeping with my best friend the whole time. I hadn't known who Joey was in I don't know how long. All I knew was Droopy. So to think and walk and talk on my own again, that, that shit, it wasn't working for me. And the reason I jump into that is because all of a sudden, you know, those of you who have been to Corcoran or seen them, maybe visiting, saw peripheral doors, right? They have stand-up cages that are, it looks like, you know, the Superman phone booths and shit. You're supposed to stand in them just like this for hours. Oh, they just leave your ass in there too, trust me. This man comes walking by, and it just so happens to be Father Greg Boyle, the founder of Humble Industries. I don't know why he was in Corcoran giving mass. He was just on pass-through. He offered me a job. He said, son, when you get out, you have a date? I said, yeah, I get out April 8, 2003. He said, son, I want you to come work for me. I was like, in L.A.? He was like, yeah. April 8, 2003, I came home. But I got sentenced from San Diego County, so I had to go back to San Diego. Parole wants their money. <laughs> no doubt about that. Even though I had a job and a house waiting for me in L.A., they said, oh, hell no. You're high control. You're SSU. Take your ass back. So I went back. Had the worst parole officer in the world turned out to be my best friend. As strict as he was, man, he did not let me ship. He did not let me mess up one time. I mean, dude hit my house four times in my house, and I had to go to the parole office four times. For about 95, 96 days, and all of a sudden he said, Joey, you still got that job in L.A.? And I was like, yeah, 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 I'm pretty sure they still give it to me. Now that I'm about to say something, don't get, I won't even tell you his name, forget it, hold up. This pro-life, he said like this, look, son, I'm going to do this. You ain't had no guns, you ain't had no run-ins with the law, nothing. I ain't even have a dirty marijuana test because I stopped smoking weed and everything. I was driving a damn forklift at RCP Block and Brick, doing 10, 12-hour days, six days a week. Which was cool, man. Anything better than being busted, right? But I wanted to do, I wanted to go work with these youngsters. I wanted to kill that whole damn belief system that we got to live by, die by, and do the rest of your time instead of being a snitch. And he said, son, keep your mama's address the same. I'm going to let you go to L.A. and work. He said, if you fuck up, you get arrested, you get a new case, I will tell them you absconded, and I never told you this shit. 
the awesome thing about that is this is a man that crossed his lines because I hoped that I had proved something to him that I wanted to change. And he was giving me the opportunity. It's kind of like we worked in concert together. Like how law enforcement, probation, parole, community activists, nonprofit, we should all be in concert together. And the biggest reason for that, we ain't got to like what each other say. We ain't got to like even each other. But if we do have an ultimate goal, and that's change, I mean, we should be able to understand, just come to that. Be humble enough to get there. And when we leave the office, well, fuck him too. I don't give a shit. I got a 10-year-old son that is my life. My life. Um, I flew in. They told you I, I've been. I'm, I'm, I'm a little tired. of. <laughs> we did the Atlanta, then Vegas. Then I went home to San Diego for my birthday to be with my son. And then I'm here. Um, so I'm like jet lag. Plus, uh, you know, after work, you do a little partying. Um, <laughs> they said I could stop. They said stop gangbanging. They didn't say stop partying. But more on homeboy industries, that's my past. More on homeboy industries, man. Father Greg Boyle has taught me what unconditional love is. If I was to mess up today and do another year and come back to his doorsteps a year later, guess what? The doors are open. I could mess up 50 more times. That 51st time, if I come back, the doors are open. It's up to me. It don't matter if you're black, white, pink, orange, yellow, green, blue, black, Allah. If you Christian, I don't give a damn. If you need help, man, let's do this. And I'm, it sucks that it's in L.A. and the majority of you are up north. And a lot of people say, well, why doesn't Father Greg, why doesn't Homeboy Industries come up here and make a chain up here and let's take it to New York? And he simply, and I asked him that too because that shit sounded like, I was like, damn, that sounds like a great idea. Pops, what's up? I call him Pops. And why we don't move it like, you know? was in New York, as a matter of fact. Why we don't move it out to the Bronx or something, man? You know what I mean? They, they look like they got problems, too. Not like us, but they still got problems. <laughs> no, and he, he, said, he said, son, he said, I don't want Homeboy Industries to become the McDonald's chain of intervention and prevention. Any one of you in here, anybody that you know that has that desire to start your own, man, Father Gregor says, you can come and live with us down here in L.A., Get everything that we got, take the whole thing with you, you just can't have the name. I do case management there at Homeboy Industries. And I ain't had a clue on how to do case management, right? But let me tell you what it's like to see somebody, to, and I'm, I'm going to use his name. His name is uh, Robert Tejeda. 18 years old, did six years, like, almost like me in California Youth Authority. Came home, never had an identification card. Nothing. Took him to uh, the DMV to get his ID. About three weeks later, about a month later, and shit, he just out of nowhere came. Hey, Joe, Joey, what's up, my boy? What's good? What's good with you? He was like, look, fool, look. And I was like, what's up? He got his ID card. Dog, I'm legit now. I'm legit. <laughs> that gives me goosebumps. Do you know how good that felt? I mean, for some reason in my head, I'm like, dude, you've been legit from the gate. But he got his ID card. It's like the first time when they get a job and they're learning how to do the W-2s, they're filling everything out. And, you know, unfortunately, some of our guys, man, when we try to get them jobs, they're not legal here. You know what I'm saying? But we find stuff for them because they still need help. They want help. But when they, they get that first paycheck, hey, dog, you want, you want, to, go to, you want to go to lunch? Well, you got paid? You got paid? Yeah, I got paid. I don't want to take you to lunch for that. No, I'm good. I'm good. Come on, food, 99 cent value menu. 
Man, I was talking about Philippe's or something if you was going to take me to lunch. 99 cents. There's a lot, there's a lot that goes on in L.A. We have this black-brown situation right now, which, like I spoke earlier, is bullshit to me. And I always use this. This half of this, this auditorium, we're going to call you guys yellow. And this half right here, sorry, my boy, pink. <laughs> now, I'm going to stay on the yellow side because I don't like pink. But if we all say, fuck pink. Tell me, sir, what? Well, I can't. I'm going to put you on front street. Tell me, sir, what would you say back? In the knuckleheaded mind in the hood back then, they say, fuck pink. What would you say, boss? Be honest. I mean, come on. See, he said it. Fuck yellow. <laughs> now, trip this, though. I believe in yellow the same way they believe in pink. That's a full-blown war right there. You push generations and people behind that shit, trust me. And once the 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 o'clock news get a hold of the shit too, and they say there's a black man involved in that, and there's a Mexican on this side. Oh, shit, it went from pink and yellow to now it's fucking racial. A couple of weeks of that, a couple of months, now it becomes this black and brown thing. That's bullshit. It's gang-related. Just so happened to be that it's yellow and pink. And some of these kids are sucking that shit up. I gotta hate this fool because he's a motherfucking Mexican. I gotta hate him because he's a fucking brother. Get the fuck out of here. Excuse my language, but that's the truth. But it sucks because some of these kids, they suck it up. We already got enough problems in the hood being poverty, you know, poverty and all that shit, being broke. That's the, we already got enough of that shit. I'm gonna end it with this. And this is like my biggest pet peeve. I love what I do. I still fall down, but I get up. Especially with people like you around. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we done been through the shit, and we still give them back. But I, I do need to ask this, because we California. We're the gang capital of the world. You know suppression is first and foremost. And that is no disrespect to any law enforcement or anybody that's in here, because you are your own individual, unique, and you probably the shit. That's why you're here. But what I don't get is this. I spoke about that kid that turned 18 to get his ID. I got kids, man, that I go to these juvenile halls with, 14, 15, 16 years old, tied back into that 186 law, facing 150 years to life, 220 years to life, ain't the shooter, aiding and a better. But why is it this? 14... You, you can't buy alcohol or cigarettes, right? Not that I would condone it, but you can't, right? Not mature enough. Not mature enough, right? Can't buy uh, porn. They download the shit anyways, but you can't buy it, right? You can't go to the DMV and get a driver's license. As a matter of fact, don't all these people that do these surveys say that you got to be 25 before your insurance even drops low because your brain hasn't fully developed yet? So how in the fuck am I going to give a 14-year-old kid 150 to, uh, to life and him know what the hell he was doing when he grew up in the hood, shootings, fightings every single day, his mama's a gangster, his daddy's in the pen? But on the flip side of that, if you rape 
or you have sex with a little boy or a little girl, it's considered a mental health issue. They send you to Tascadero or some shit, give you some pills. When they let your ass out, they tell you, just stay uh, 200 yards away from any schools. Right there, bro? How in the hell is that? I mean, I'm not to say one is better than the other. Because if we're not part of the solution, we're still part of the problem. But it just, that kills me. I got a 10-year-old son, and he's about to start junior high. I mean, in my head, my, my son is very intelligent, man. He knows what's up sometimes. I think I raised him already too fast. But I want him to be able to be independent. But I want him to be a kid, too. And I already, I already get thoughts. They ask, what are you going to do when, uh, when he gets to junior high and um, them dudes want to get him in? Or they start to, you know, push him around or something. My smart-ass comment is, I'm going to go down there and beat the shit out them motherfuckers. <laughs> but I know I can't. I know I can't. For those of you men that, that are doing what you're doing, change is possible. I got some dudes that are coming home after 25, 30 years, man, and all they know is inside. What's your last two? Stand-up count. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's all they know. But the more that, that's why it changes because of you people. Because people care. We need to start seeing these young men, these young women as human. Not demonizing them. That man, Father Greg, that you see, man, that's, that's the father that I really always wanted in my life, and I finally got. I think the bottom line here, man, change is possible. For some, it's going to be tougher, and for some, it's going to be the first time they get cuffs in the back of the car, so be it. I wish I was that kid that got it, but for some dumbass reason, I wanted to go do 13 and a half years in prison. But I think I got my Ph.D. I got my master's in this. And it's just not giving up. Ain't no color lines. Shit. Bullet penetrates skin no matter color. Don't matter. But I think that is, uh, my time is up, man. Uh, I have uh, cards. I have information on Homeboy Industries. If you want anything, I will stay here. Whatever I can give. I'm just another struggler that's pushing this push. And I got somebody that backs it up. And again, I thank you guys for having me. started. It's always hard to follow when you have an excellent speaker like this, but the topic that we're going to be discussing is very, very important. I think that everyone will really be interested in what we have to say. So I'm Antoinette Davis. I work at the National Council on Crime and Delinquency in Oakland, California, and I have been asked to facilitate this panel. Um, I want to go over the setup. What we're going to basically do is have about 45 minutes of discussion among the panel, and then we'll have about 25 minutes for questions and answers. Um, can everyone hear me? Okay, great. 
I want to start by saying that the, this is a very timely discussion. Lately, I've spent a lot of time in juvenile hall, and I've had the opportunity to talk to correctional officers, to talk to probation officers, and then a number of CBOs. And the one question that we've been asking is, how can we facilitate a smooth return into the community for youth? And one of the top five answers has to do with helping them to, to acquire skills so that they can get a job. And um, when you think about that, I also talked to a man at a CBO, and he told me that his focus isn't even on the youth, it's on the parents. And one of the ways that he believes that we can smooth the transition for youth is to have parents who are Am I too far back? Okay, thank you. One of the ways to smooth the transition for youth has to do pretty much with the parents, because a lot of these youth's parents are formerly incarcerated. So when we provide them with jobs, that's going to smooth the transition for the youth also. So um, when we get started, we have a really good panel here. We have people who are business owners. We have representation from the mayor's office. We have... Uh, a couple of individuals who've been formerly incarcerated and who have made that transition into employment. Um, so I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves in just a moment, but I want to start out with some statistics. And everyone hates statistics, but it's important to just discuss a few things so that we can put a context to what we're talking about. So as most of you know, about every year about 700,000 prisoners are released from state and federal prisoners, state and federal prisons. Um, about three-quarters of these within three years, it's, the research is showing that most of them are uh, going back into prisons, so within three years. Um, we know that a lot of these individuals have mental health issues. We know that there is also a high illiteracy and low literacy rate among these individuals. But when we look at that, we still know that there are people who have made this transition. And we also know that research shows that when people do make the transition into the work environment, that that decreases their chances of recidivism. So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about how do you make that smooth transition into the workforce. You know, um, I think most people see that there is a need for individuals to, you know, have viable employment, but how do we actually do it? That's one of the questions. So we know the need. The need is to have employment. But how do we make that transition into employment? And that's what we're going to be discussing today. So I want to start and ask you to introduce yourselves and say what you do and how that fits into what we're discussing today. Hello, my name is Chris Demalis, um, and as Antoinette said, I work for the Office of Economic and Workforce Development here with the City and County of San Francisco. I'm in the uh, Business Services Division. So, you know, what I do day in and day out, um, I inform businesses of incentives that are available for um, hiring formerly incarcerated folks um, to kind of, you know, help them bridge that gap. Um, the other thing that I do is uh, I work with a rapid response program. So. Uh, you know, businesses who are having tough times, helping them strategize, um, you know, what they can do with their workforce to help them out. My name is Joseph Corbin. I am an ex-offender, ex-heroin addict, crackhead, um, you name it, and um, was able to make the transition from uh, being incarcerated to business owner. I currently employ about 20 people. Um, 20% of whom are ex-offenders. 
and it's my story. I'm Dewan Redwood. I'm a counselor facilitator for the Northern California Service League. Um, I do, I've been working for the Northern California Service League for about four years. I'm also a formerly incarcerated individual who has made a significant transition uh, from incarceration to employment. Hi, my name is Dornell Benson. I'm 34 years old. I'm a native here in San Francisco. I'm also, also a former incarcerated individual. And um, <clears throat> I'm with the um, NOVA agency. And I've been driving taxi for like about a month now. And also, I go to school full time. <clears throat> Hi, my name is Bill Hancock. And uh, I have the taxi training school here in the city. But I might add, I feel a little out of place right now. But uh, I, I, um, what we try to do, and it, it doesn't matter what your background is, that we really reach out to helping you. And we start from the beginning of the training and take you all the way through until we can find you a job. We're not, we just don't want to leave you out there stranded. We want to be there for you. But you have to be up front with me and tell me everything I need to know in order to put you in the right place. But we're there for you. Okay. Um, I want to follow up with you, Bill. What are some of the issues that you see when you're uh, trying to place uh, formerly incarcerated individuals? Well, I, I think that really is just only three things that basically will eliminate a, uh, a person from getting into the in taxi industry. And I'll be quite upfront with you and tell you it is child molestation, kidnapping, and rape. Beyond that, we... Uh, just work with the police department, and I have quite a few connections there. And there is, unless it's one of those three things, I think we can be very successful in getting you there, getting you out on the road. Okay. Um, have you had any issues in terms of, like, we talk about low literacy levels and anything? Do you provide training, or has that been an issue yeah. for? Our biggest issue in, in our industry is, is language. It's language. And unless you... If there's an English problem, we do have some ESL teachers that can work with us. But other than that, I, I don't see where that's an issue at all. Being able to communicate with the public certainly is important. There's no doubt about that. Um, I want to also ask, um, Mr. Corbin, I know that you were formerly incarcerated and you've made the transition as an, a business owner and a very successful business owner, how, how, what process, what, what helped you to do that? I mean, this is a question that we need to know. Uh, well, when I was released from, uh, gosh, I guess the last place was probably level, a level four yard at Mule Creek. I came back to San Francisco and lived in the homeless shelter on Polk and Gary. I guess it's still there. Um, mm -hmm. And I got to be honest, it's just no easy way. I got on GA, I got on unemployment, food stamps, and had a job. It was just, uh, later on I ended up having to pay all that back, of course. <laughs> but uh, it's just, I guess I just had to drive this time that I was done. I was threatened with a third strike allegation. And um, when that sentence was read off by the DA, I knew at that point that my, career, my criminal career was over. So it was just a matter of going from one place to the next. So I went from the homeless shelter to Walden House to um, an apartment in the TL to getting married and moving to Oakland and just continuing with this business. 
did you have any mentoring or were there special programs or anything that helped you? Um, I guess throughout my, my criminal career, I had been a carpenter okay. and um, at various times a union apprentice and carpenter. Okay. And it was just something that everyone I worked for, I guess it's just the, the street hustlers mentality. I thought that I was smarter than anybody that I'd worked for and that I could do it better, and more efficient and make more money at it. So I just made that determination that I was going to do this and had a small job on Hayes and, Hayes and Webster, a stair job, and just took every penny and just kept growing the jobs. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to ask Dewan. Now you're Dewan, right? I can't see your tag, Darnell. I'm sorry. Darnell. Oh. Are you D Darnell? <laughs> okay, Darnell. Um, you're right now driving a taxi, right? That's correct. Okay, can you tell us about the process of what you've done so that you can do this? Have you gone to a school specifically, or what's the process, that, what's the process been like for you to make well, the transition? Well, the process was, first of all, um, going to see Bill, and um, he has a, um, a school called Flagger Cab down at Yellow Cab. And what, we do, what I did there is he trains us basically to like to know the streets, intersections, um, hotels, restaurants, stuff like that. And then... After you go through the training, you, you take a test, you pass that test, and then you pretty much take the final examination test at um, 850 Bryant. And then from there, you just go and try to solicit work at any cab company. How did you find out about Bill's school? Actually, um, I'm in a um, treatment facility program called Metropolitan Fresh Start, and another peer of mine had um, addressed me and um, led me to Bill. Now... I'm confused with names because I can't see the name. I'm Dewan. It's two D's, so it's not my fault here. <laughs> okay, so this is Dewan. So you're a counselor, correct? Counselor facilitator. Can, can you tell us what you're doing and how you fit into this? Actually, um, that's a good question to ask. It's really good to say. Um, I'm a counselor facilitator for the Northern California Service League. Uh, I consider myself to be one of the frontline staff uh, at the Northern California Service League, and what we offer uh, two ex-offenders is job readiness training and an opportunity to better yourself through uh, some of the services that we offer. We have a class called Awakening New Futures, and I think it has a great name uh, for individuals who are looking for a new future. And this, uh, this class is a 40-hour class. It's structured around uh, a whole employment setting. Uh, we, we do everything from covering the employment basis and getting you ready for employment. We put closure to your past so that you can uh, focus on your future without some of the barriers that we are faced with in our struggle. We also look at who am I presentations that allow you to uh, look at how you present yourself to different people. Uh, we, you know, we get real comfortable presenting ourselves to people that we know, and then we get around people that we don't know, and we kind of get shell-shocked, and it affects a whole presentation, so we talk about that. We also talk about perception, which I think is one of, one of the key components as well, uh, because each morning you get up in the morning, you may be looking for a job and you may feel like you're job ready, but I, I like to share with people that that's their perception. There's always two sides of perception to get a job, and you need to influence someone else's perception to get that opportunity. 
We do resumes. You know, a lot of the clients that I work with, uh, they don't have resumes. However, they have an extensive history uh, in incarceration experience. Uh, so what I do is I'll take that incarceration experience and I develop it into something that's socially acceptable to society. And we put it on a, we put it on a resume and we get it surfing and ready to roll. Um, we, we make contact with employers because we only work with ex-offenders. So I'm not going to send a person somewhere on a job lead if they don't know that this individual has some barriers that come with them. So that's one of the key things as well. Uh, we have guest speakers come in and they talk about various things, risk taking and some of the factors in that. Um, one of my favorite pieces about this class is the hard to answer question. You know, as I share with you, I am a formerly incarcerated individual. Um, I think when I turned 18, I was issued an eight-year stay uh, in a correctional facility for a bad choice that I made at the age of 18. But I think that kind of helped me develop myself into who I am today. So a lot of what I see in individuals is me, and I look to help them through uh, helping them become confident with answering that question, have you been convicted of a felony, how you best answer that question, and still maintain your value in an interview which is a lot, um, which is mostly what we think about as ex-offenders. Any ex-offender, I tell you right now, when they go to an interview, the biggest question they're worried about is them asking about their criminal history. A lot of the other questions are pretty, uh, I wouldn't say they is simple, but they're real easier to answer than that particular question. And that's a lot where the interview kind of goes downhill from that point. Uh, I also have employers come in and interview you uh, before you get out of the class so that you get real interview experience before you go out to an employer, which helps you identify with some of your growth and where your strong points are when you're making the connection with employers. Okay, Duan, can I ask you what, um, what type of agencies or what jobs, where are you placing people? Or well, the, the, uh, the jobs in? range from uh, food serving jobs to uh, janitorial, driving, uh, customer service, some administrative positions, uh, uh, monitors, uh, monitor positions for some of our local homeless shelters here, uh, some catering positions for cafes. That's going to lead me into the next question, and I'm, I'm going to come back to you also. Yes. Um, I, Christine, I know that um, the workforce development, you guys have some tax incentives and some bonds and things of that sort that helps as an incentive for employers to hire formerly incarcerated people. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, definitely. Um, and I want to let you guys know uh, that there are postcards and all the packets that you receive. So if you want more information on any of these, it has contact information, websites, et cetera. Um, but there is, there's a federal bonding program available, and it's uh, done through the Employment Development Department, um, ADD office at uh, 801 Turk here in the city. Um, it is a federal program, and it, it bonds folks for $5,000 for the first six months of employment. And uh, it's for any, any act of employee dishonesty is kind of how they, uh, how they sell it. So, you know, it, it helps employers who, um, you know, maybe have concerns about, you know, theft, things like that. You know, there is that insurance policy that's available. Um, it is completely free. So, you know, it's just the, the employee needs to go into the office and actually, you know, request the policy. It takes about five minutes, and that's all, um, not a bunch of paperwork. 
Um, so that's there, uh, and that is at the federal level. So, you know, not just available here in San Francisco, but anywhere else um, here in the United States. There's also several tax programs, both at the federal, the state, um, and then we do have one at the local level as well. So, um, you know, the, the federal credits are there for uh, ex-felons who are newly hired. Um, they are pretty substantial. Um, there's also, like I said, a, a state program, also pretty substantial, and then a local payroll tax credit. Um, process is pretty simple on those, and, uh, you know, again, I'd encourage, you know, any of you guys who are interested or any businesses that are interested, hop on the website that we have. The, again, the contact information is on the postcard, and it walks you through the process, or um, my phone number is up there, too. So, Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I want to go to the next question. Um, Mr. Corbin. What are you looking for in an employee? Uh, in the construction industry, it's pretty simple. Uh, can you swing a hammer? <laughs> <laughs> no, pretty it's not very complicated. Uh, can you do the job? Are you going to show up on time? Are you going to steal from my clients? Um, which, honestly, over the years, I've found that people who have had no criminal experience whatsoever um, end up being the ones that steal, <laughs> not from me per se, but from my clients, which um, doesn't help with my image in the community at all. Yeah. And um, that's been a problem with me. People who I've hired who are ex-offenders are some of the most honest people um, that I've had the privilege of working with. That's right. Okay, so what... Okay, so that sounds easy enough, but so if I were an ex-offender and I came to you, what, what would my screening process include? Well, it's just basically, you know, people call me all the time and they, they, they would like to, to work for me, but, you know, I'm not a training mm -hmm. uh, facility at all. Um, first of all, there, there are programs out there that are training people to be job-ready in the construction fields. Um, there's some excellent opportunities available in the Bay Area for that. Um, we are more of a, a higher-end, journeyman-based, high-quality union company that does public works jobs and higher-end residential jobs. So we're looking for people who more or less have experience in the various Finnish uh, trades related to carpentry. It's not to say that we do not take on apprentices from time to time, but the insurance industry, particularly workers' compensation, has made it so difficult and taken all the incentives away for training people from a ground-up point of view that it's just, it's very difficult, but we do try and do that. Okay, thank you. Now, this is a question to the panel. Um, with what you're saying, it, it, it makes me think, what about, we do have issues in terms of people who have been formerly incarcerated. Sometimes they may need some accommodations. What if they need to be able to go to therapy, if they have some former drug use and things of that sort? Or just, just like a parent, as a parent, you may need to be able to take your child to a, a doctor's appointment or so forth. What, are, are there any special accommodations that you find that you have to make, or if, if that does need to occur, what are the recommendations? Because I would assume that sometimes you do may have to make a few accommodations, provide a little specific training. And you said that you are a more high-end level with journeyman level, but what about for, I guess this could be a question for you, what, how do you, how do you uh, recommend that 
individuals handle that if they do need some special accommodation? Well, um, one of the things that, and that's absolutely a good question you ask, because a lot of our clients uh, do have other uh, barriers that they find themselves with, uh, not only uh, the impact of incarceration, but also uh, the, the burdens of uh, having drug addictions and uh, other things that could be related to their housing situation, instability in their housing that's affecting their chances at getting employment. Um, there are various things that they could come with. Now, during this class, uh, one, of, one of my jobs as a facilitator is to kind of assess the client uh, and where they are, um, how, how job ready are they. Um, and a lot of times we get clients that come out of the system, they've, for whatever reason, got a job in the system, and it was actually given, given to them by Duckett. And so, you know, they come home with a motivating attitude that they want to work, but then we get out here, it's a whole different process to getting a job, and you have to look at some of the things that need to be uh, looked at in order to make yourself uh, job ready. And so the additional components that you speak about are things that we would either refer out to. Uh, we work with a lot of other agencies that uh, work with us in this in this effort to uh, help ex-offenders. And we, uh, if there is a referral needed, we also have a day reporting center uh, that are for parolees to come and uh, it's, a, it's accountability situation with parolees where they can come and spend four hours a day. There's a lot of workshops and services uh, that go on in this day reporting center uh, where a client can get other needs assessed and get those needs met while they are in the employment setting. Um, let me ask you, Mr. Corbin, you said that you were a former drug abuser and you went into the workforce. Did you find that you had any specific or special needs that needed to be accommodated? Um, absolutely. Were those needs met and accommodated? <laughs> absolutely not. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah. Can you describe what those needs were and, and how you dealt with it then? Um, I would say I just... Think that's, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think sure. that's really a... a uh, an important part of the whole process is because, again, we see the need, but how do we make that next step? So we want to know, you know, so how do we do that? Well, in my particular case, it was just that, you know, I was a dope fiend and I went to work every day on union jobs and swung a hammer and put my, my own life and the lives of other people around me at risk because I'm loaded. Um, but I think that basically the incentive needs to be that there is a life for you without drugs and that somehow or another our society is perpetuating this drug use by continually pumping it into the community and making it, it it's easier to go out and buy a, a 20 shot of crack than it is to to go out and, and you know learn how to write a letter mm -hmm. then the problem is gonna keep going Okay. I was going to ask you next, Mr. Hancock. Yeah, they're, they're driving a taxi. It's, it sounds like, well, anybody can drive. Well, that's not necessarily true. But it does have its pros and cons. And I'll tell you this much. You, when you're, you're an independent contractor out there, you're responsible for your own life. And that's a big responsibility. No matter where you've been in life, you're still responsible for your life in this business. You're not going to get a paycheck. And every day is payday. And sometimes the backgrounds that you come out of, uh, whether I don't care what it is, when you have that money in your hands, uh, it's very tempting. And if you don't know how to manage it, it can really be a, another disease that you're taking on. 
and it's a very tough thing. And you've got to be able to say to yourself, I'm responsible here now. I've got a family to take care of. I've got to take care of myself. And everything I do is on my shoulders. Am I able to do that? And one of the things that we like to do, at least with us, with the school, is that we do, I give out my phone number. And I'm available 24 hours a day. I keep a phone right by my bed. And if there's a problem out there, and whether it's drug-related or whether it's a problem with a customer, I don't care what it is. If I have to, I'll get up out of bed and I'll come and let's help you solve it. But it's very, very difficult to be responsible for yourself, no matter where you come from in, in life. If somebody dumps it on you and says, from this point on, this is your life, you're responsible. Deal with it, whether it's health care, whether it's management of money, whether it's education, whether it's another lifestyle, whatever it is, you've got to take the responsibility. And all, overall, I think everybody has to meet that. But it's, in this business, it's a little more challenging because when you get paid every day, and maybe you come out of a drug background. I don't know that. But that certainly is very, very tempting sitting there in your hand. And a lot of guys, you know, some, they talk about living from paycheck to paycheck. How about pay every day? Every day. Okay? And some people, they have one bank. It's called the Bank of Levi's. And they put the bank in their pocket this day and the next day in this pocket. You know? And then maybe it won't be there the next day. So it's, it's a big responsibility that you take on. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to ask this. What has been the key? So this is actually to those who have been incarcerated formerly. What has been the key for you to find and maintain work? Oh, the key for me would be, first I just want to say all praises and thanks is due to God. It's staying spiritually connected. And with the help of um, Metropolitan Fresh Start and the values and principles that I've learned and to put my recovery first and, um, and to kind of coattail on what Bill was saying, because <clears throat> I drive the taxi every day. I've been driving for like a month now, and, um, and I'm a recovering addict myself. And I actually came in contact with a situation where I had picked up some people from, they were from Canada, and um, these people, they was out here partying big time, and it was like, the guy literally, they was like begging me to find him some drugs. And I, and I said, I can't, I cannot do it. They was like, well, taxi driver is supposed to help us out. And I'm like, man, I cannot. I'm, I'm like, look, man, I guess he seen the gold teeth and was like, I know you know where to get it. So I was like. So I'm like, you know, I said, man, honestly, I said. Because from, from what I learned being in recovery, you know, it's like I'm not loving you if I help you go do some drugs because I've been there myself. You know, I've been down that same road. And I'm like, I can't do it, man. I, I'm like, I just I just can't. You know, I'm not going to jeopardize my recovery or, or anything, whatever. But anyway, but how I maintain working is, is basically waking up every morning. You know, I go to my morning meeting. I pray. First I pray, then I go to my morning meeting. So that's like medicine when I go to my morning meeting, and then I go to school. And so I, it's like a balance. That's how I start my day. <clears throat> and, just, and just staying connected with a good support system and stuff like that. But that's how I maintain um, going to work every day and just, you know, doing the right thing. Um, I think for me, uh, at the second, that sounded pretty good, dude. That was, that was good right there. <laughs> that was pretty good. Uh, you know, for me, I mean, one of the key things for me was I was actually a, um, 
uh, a formerly incarcerated uh, person who came home uh, without the adequate education needed. Uh, so I was below um, I was below my education level. Uh, so that was one of the things that I needed to focus on, along with getting a job. I mean, the most thing I wanted was a job, but it was it was very hard to get a job uh, in the position that I was in. Uh, so one of the things I did first was I furthered my education uh, to make myself uh, job ready in some sense in other people's eyes. Uh, the next thing I did was uh, I got in touch with a real strong support system from the community, and it was really community-based organizations that was uh, supporting individuals like me at the time uh, who were trying to reconstruct their lives. Uh, I just want to say for programs, I, I really believe in programs and what they can do. You know, there are some programs that are truly, uh, truly trying to help you make a difference in your life and help you set forward on a path to having a better life. And uh, those are some of the programs that I, I looked into. Uh, one of the things about getting a job is just the opportunity to get it, and that's uh, convincing somebody that you are ready and that you are a trustworthy ex-offender uh, with, with an obligation to, to be at work every day. And most of all, I told, I, I told the employer uh, what I would say to anybody, that we are the best employees. Actually, um, I worked for nine cents an hour for two years, and I never missed a day of work. <laughs> yeah. um, so. Okay. I, I want to follow up on one question because you hit a topic when you said that you were below your, your I guess, your grade level when you came out. So what process did you take? Did you go into a training program? Did you have a GED? Because, again, that's a, really a big concern because there are so many who are coming out of prison who are, Low again, low-level literacy and, um, you know, don't have their high school diploma or GED. So what was that process? What did you do? Um, actually, uh, I got involved with uh, one of the community-based organizations that I was working with at the time um, helped, me, um, helped me get enrolled into uh, Southeast Community College. I think it's uh, 1800 Oakdale over in the Bayview. And... Um, that was, uh, that was my first experience of going back to school. I was actually, uh, when I went to prison, I was 18. When I got out, I was 23. And me being in class, I was like 24, but everybody in class was teenagers. Mm -hmm. So I was feeling kind of out of place and feeling, you know, looking kind of dumb to myself, being wishing I would have completed things earlier. But that was the, the, the focal point. Uh, and to really be honest with you, uh, some of the individuals that was in the class motivated me to continue to come to class to get my GED. And once I got that, I just felt like I was a new person because that was something that um, I never had before. And it felt good to walk across stage and get it. Did that open more doors for you? So did that open successfully open more doors for you? Um, it, it definitely uh, put me more than halfway uh, to the door, along with some additional support from people who were really uh, trying to make a difference in my life. I was given an opportunity to work. Uh, in doing this work, I was doing uh, residential outreach work when um, I actually uh, was going through a training, going through a certification to be a batter's intervention uh, facilitator. And I just felt like that was something. At the time, I was on parole. And that was one certificate that I knew I had. So any other certificates I can get to go along with that was only going to help my chances. 
And so I was real eager and hungry to get into uh, any kind of training, any kind of educational components that would help me uh, further myself in life and also give me a real opportunity at getting employment. Okay, thank you. I want to ask you the same question, Mr. Corbin. What has been key to, well, you're a business owner, so what has been the key to helping you maintain your business and be successful? Um, well, I'm, I still, I'm a business owner, but I still have to get up and go to work every day. I still have to show up, which, you know, it's a challenge. You know, it's, uh, I think it's even more so because there's no clock that I clock into. Uh, I am the boss, so in the beginning it was it was more difficult because I had a home office and newborn baby and uh, just no motivation to leave the house. The computer's there, the off the desk is there. Guys are already at the job, so why do I have to get out of my pajamas? So. <laughs> You know, so it was it, making the transition from a home office to an actual office was key for me because it, it mean that I did have to make the transition from leaving my home, going into an actual office, and wow, by the way, yeah, I, I, this is mine. Um, so I think that it all really started back in prison with uh, pre-release classes. There was a particular program that I took called Breaking Barriers that was, um, had been implemented by a safe cracker who had done probably 25, 30 years in prison from cracking safes. And uh, at the pre-release class, they taught us that everything has a value. And it's up to you to determine what the value in any particular thing is. So if you're on the weight pile, you're lifting weights, and they say, there's books over there in the library. It may not have any real pay value to you, but it's up to you to change that pay value. So I really grasped a lot from this particular program. And then when the guy came to Mule Creek and actually gave the presentation, I mean, he was a really a, a real nerd, um, glasses about an inch and a half thick, you know, just a real OG safe cracker. And I was like, my God. If this guy can change his life, you know, after spending 30 years, 25 years in prison, and, you know, now he's giving lectures to the CIA and the FBI, you know what, I think I can do this, you know. So um, that was real key to, for me. Okay. I'm not sure if these programs are still being implemented by Mr. Schwarzenegger or not, but if they're not, they really do need to be. Okay. Um, we wanted to leave enough time for questions and answers, so um, I'm going to wrap this up, but I do want to ask, do you have anything else to add, Christine, about how this fits <laughs> into what your department is doing? You know, I, I think that, um, you know, we definitely are here to support however we can. I know we have, you know, a lot of folks who are in the audience today who are, you know, part of organizations. Um, that support ex-offenders. You know, if there if there are things that um, you know that we want to talk about uh, later on, like I said, you know, my my door is always open. My my phone number is all over the website. So um, you know, anything that we can do to help uh, and to support, and to definitely if if you guys will help me get the word out on on the incentives that are out there. Sometimes that's the foot in the door. Um, so, okay, so. I want to thank you all, and we're going to move, over, move on into the uh, question and answer, but you have excellent examples of success here, so uh, let's give our panel a hands up.
have about 25 minutes for questions and answers, so um, we have individuals back here who will read the question. Let's go ahead. Okay, your first question is from uh, Ella. She's from Arriba Juntos. Her question is, when job developing, how do you pitch hiring formerly incarcerated people to employers? That's for the entire panel. Um, one of the one of the pitches one of the pitches used for employers and uh, ex-offenders is is you have to be able to sell the ex-offender that you're trying to get the position uh, for. There are different um, there are different things that can be presented to the employer in regards to giving an ex-offender an opportunity for employment. Uh, one of the things about that is that it's it's a lot of paperwork involved and you have to be uh, on time and on top of your paperwork. Uh, other things that I share with an employer is the fact that uh, the individuals that we are trying to get jobs today are individuals who uh, ultimately will be very good employees and have a lot, uh, have a lot at, at stake when it comes to bettering their lives. Anyone else? Yeah, in our in our business, we we don't have to pitch anything at all. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of a relief not to have to go through that. If you want to work and you come and you have a good driving record and you take the training uh, and go through the police orientation, we're ready for you and we'll find a job. And it, nobody questions it. It's kind of a monkey off your back that way. Okay. What about you, Mr. Corbin, the business owner? Do they have to pitch it to you? Or? Um, no, I'm, I'm not really... Um, I don't really have to pitch it. I guess now, currently in Oakland, there seems to be more of a push uh, to hire ex-offenders, and there seems to be a situation uh, where there's incentives being created to employers to hire ex-offenders. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm just involved with those discussions uh, currently. What, what have they involved? So what's the... Well, for contractors, it's simple. Contractors want... A, they want to have their plans pushed through the city, and if you are in a position to help a contractor get their permits expedited without the expedite fees, then contractors listen to that. They also listen to uh, contractors' parking. If you are able to present a contractor with a parking permit where they can park wherever the heck they want without having to worrying about it, contractors listen to that. I guess everyone would listen to that. Um, but I think that if you approach incentives from a specific industry classification, it's not really hard to see what that industry would need in order to, to hire the ex-offender. I don't think it's rocket science here. I just think that People need to look at the individual industries and come up with incentives that are specific to those industries. Okay, thank you. Next question. Good morning. Damon Liu of UCSF asks, what can be done to encourage, to encourage large-scale employers in San Francisco to not only provide job opportunities to the reentry population, but to also provide CBOs, but to also partner with CBOs in the development of training programs serving this population? Yeah, that's a two-part question. <laughs> Do you want to start with the first part? And I think you, you touched on that already, Mr. Corbin. I don't know if we want to reiterate that or... I would just, just uh, say in, in adding to that that um, tax incentives. Mm -hmm. Tax incentives are a good thing. Any small business, 
needs tax incentives. I'm currently in an, in an address in Oakland where right across the street is a hub zone. Okay, I'm right there, but I'm across the street, so I don't get that tax credit, which to me is insane. The neighborhood doesn't change in the middle of the street. It's still the same neighborhood. Right. Um, so if there were some local tax incentives, I think it would be a great thing. I think the second part, or the second part of that question is, I would challenge any of the grant writers out there that can put together a grant that can help a small contractor such as myself, and I say small in the scheme of things, the SBA standards are $17 million a year and less, you are small. Well, I'm micro. <laughs> so if you can help put together a grant program to where we can put together a training program to train people that, you know, you have to shower before you're ready, you have to put on deodorant, you know, you have to show up on time. The, just the remedial basic skills that our community people need to get to work and be job ready, then I'm Corbin Building and I'm located in Oakland. You can find me. Okay, thank you. Does anyone else want to add on? No? Okay, can we go to the next question? Yes, uh, Sharon Loveseth from Healthy Perspectives asks, does Northern California Service League provide services in other Northern California counties? If so, what counties? Uh, actually, uh, the North, we, we provide services here in San Francisco, and we also provide services uh, in San Jose. Those are the two cities that we are providing services out of right now for the Northern California Service League. We're primarily uh, the Northern Bay Area. This is an anonymous question. Is there a list of companies that participate in the incentive program that we can contact if we have a client that is ready to work? Um, unfortunately, because they are tax incentives, uh, as you would imagine, most of that information is confidential. Um, so I can't, you know, necessarily give you, you know, em employers to target necessarily. Um, but I think, you know, almost any employer, if you go to them and you say, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm ready to work, or I've got a participant who is here and ready to work, and these are the additional things that I can, you know, offer to you or offer you information on. Um, I hear from businesses all the time that our tax incentives um, here in the city and even the statewide ones are one of the best kept secrets. Um, so, you know, that kind of gives you uh, an additional edge that a lot of employers don't know about them, you know, as much outreach as we, as we try to do. Um, so, you know, I, I would just say assume that the employer hasn't heard about them and, and go ahead and talk about it. I, I do want to say that I think that is actually can be a good suggestion to even have a website or something that does have a list of people who are hiring, you know, formerly incarcerated people and not just receiving the incentives, but something of that sort. That's a good idea that someone should take note of for this. Okay. Uh, next question, please. We'll go with you. Oh, okay. okay next question. Um, for uh, De Juan, uh, how do you recommend people explain their convictions in a job interview? Uh, you want a demonstration? <laughs> um, let me just be up and, uh, pretty frank with you. Uh, my background has violence. Uh, violence is one of the hardest things it is to explain in an interview. I would prefer I had some kind of chemical dependency in my background where I can definitely share the fact that I've had 
some barriers due to chemical dependency, and it's affected some of the choices that I made that led to my incarceration. And once you acknowledge that, the rest of your conversation should be on the divert. It's an acknowledge and divert process. You acknowledge the fact that you have been convicted of a felony. In the sense of acknowledging that, one of your key, one of your key points in that focus is how did you turn that negative into a positive? So once you acknowledge the fact that you've been convicted of a felony, the rest of your divert should be what accomplishments, uh, what positive accomplishments you've made, what, uh, what, what measurements that you can share with an employer that shows your growth. Two things you want to do for an employer. You need to show that you're qualified for the position and you need to show that you've been rehabilitated from your crime of offense, which means you have no trouble talking about it. Thank you. Okay, next question, please. The next question is from Bob to Darnell. How did Nova assist you? Um, first, I just want to, okay, let me just rewind, rewind a little bit. Um, I was incarcerated in 2006, and I was doing a short, short stay there in San Bruno County Jail. And I didn't know where I was going when I was going to get released or whatever, but um, a, a gentleman named Chris Jones came in and did a, um, a short lecture about this, pro, this agency called NOVA, you know, Nonviolent Alliance, whatever. And I'm like, is, is that right? They're like, oh, they'll help you with this, your housing, they'll help you with this. And, you know, it's a new program that's just getting off the ground and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, I'm going to take a look at that. So when I got released, um, I was coming out of the sliding doors on the 7th Street side, and um, I had 50 bucks in one pocket, right? And I had, like, um, <clears throat> my connects pocket and my, and my connects number in my other pocket. So what I wanted to share with everybody is that for the first time, I actually had a choice coming out of jail because from past times, it was always like, okay, when I come out of jail, I'm going to sell some drugs, what female I'm going to manipulate, or what I'm, whatever I have to do to survive. Because having a job was not even, or it wasn't even in my vocabulary. So here it is. I'm like, okay, well, let me get this a shot. You know, there's no agency. So I sat in the lobby down there. I talked to a few deputies, and it was like, okay, yes, right, it's, it's across the street right there on 7th Street or whatever. So when it was like 8 o'clock, I went in there, and I think that's when I first met my case manager, Maurice. And... um. They did assessment. I told them I had a drug problem. You know, they was very non-judgmental. They got me an Up From Darkness program. And um, from then on, I was like, okay, cool. So now I'm in a program to pay my rent. It's like, whatever you need, this and this and that. So they was kind of like showing me like motherly love. Like, cause I never, I never had, I never was raised by both parents. So the Nova agency to me was like being like a privileged kid. You know how privileged kids have their mom, their father, they pay for their college tuition, this and this and that. And that's what NOVA has, has done to me. And by, by, by me being connected with that agency, it has helped, it has, it has diverted me from doing illegal things and being involved in illegal business. It has showed me that, okay, I can do other things. I don't have to commit crimes. I don't have to be violent. And not only that, I've been with these guys for two years. And from senior deputy on down, I think lieutenant now. And um, Richard. And Maurice, they're like a family with me, man. It's like, it, 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 it's, it, it's just, man, it's real touching. But um, the Nova Agency has helped me in many ways. And um, when I got hooked up with, here with Bill, and because looking from the outside in before I was driving a taxi, I was like, dang, what do you what do you have to do is drive a taxi? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I thought it was like, you, you got to go through all the, you know, whatever, right? So 
now that I drive a taxi, I kind of consider myself as like kind of like a foot soldier for like agencies like um, um, Service League and um, and Nova. Because when people see me on the streets, at first I came like to work in my slacks and stuff, and I was like, nah, that's all right. I'm gonna put my wave cap back on, my stunners back on. So when people see me, they like, man, you driving a taxi, man? I'm like, man, yeah. Da, da, da. So I ran into my one partner. Um, Charlie, he was like, did you drive me taxi? I'm like, yeah, man. I'm like, man, all you got to do is this and all you got to do is that. I'm like, man, I, you ain't got to sell dope no more. Look. I'm like, look at the why. You feel me? So he's like, man, okay. And next thing you know now, he's driving the taxi. So, you know, I feel good about that. You know what okay. Can I, I just want to say that um, coming from a research perspective, you give, uh, the research tells us that Ex-offenders who are able to get gainful employment and establish social bonds, you know, bond with the community and have mentoring and things of that sort, those are the ones that usually do well, and you're an excellent example of that. So it's always nice to be able to, you know, a person that deals with numbers every day, it's always nice to be able to see the picture of that. It puts a face on it. So um, I do want to highlight that. So uh, let's go to the next question. Okay, the next question is from Dara, and her organization is Cornell, and it's addressed to Christine Damalas. Her question is, what incentives do you pitch to employers? Um, I tend to pitch, I do pitch the bonding program some, um, but I pitch more of the tax incentives uh, to employers generally. And again, you know, there are several different levels of them. Uh, the, the federal ones are available. The state ones, and again, the state ones aren't just available here in San Francisco. There are actually 42 state enterprise zones available in California. So uh, there, there's one in Oakland. There's one in, in San Jose. Um, so I let them know, you know, what's out there. Um, and mainly I look at my job as, as helping them get through that application process so it's not so fearful, so that they understand the incentive is there and it's not as hard as it seems to kind of, you know, get through it. Um, and then the other one that I do pitch to them is we do have a local in San Francisco. We do have a local program hooked up with the state enterprise zone, which helps employers offset the, the payroll tax here in San Francisco for, uh, for ex-offenders and, and other folks that they do hire. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. Lauren Jones of CHAMP would like the panel to talk more about women in reentry. Good question. Well, <laughs> this may be a little difficult since they're not women, but um, what we do, I just, um, do you want to go ahead and... <laughs> uh, the Northern California CERT, we have we have a women's uh, we have a women's reentry uh, house, and it's called the Cameo House, and it's actually uh, a unification reunification program for ex-offender women uh, that have adolescents or young children trying to reestablish uh, themselves. Uh, they they have an opportunity to go through this program, and if I'm not mistaken, I think it could be anywhere from six months to a year program. Uh, they graduate out of this program, at which time they receive assistance uh, with getting stable housing and getting themselves reestablished in the community. That's uh, what the Northern California Service League has for the women. 
Can I just, and I'll let you go, not to make light of this, I think that's an excellent question. Um, we know that the issues with women, we, it's uh, issues of drug abuse and um, issues of how to reunify them with their children and things of that sort. So there are similarities with the reentry issues, but I think for women it's, it's even more uh, difficult at times because we're often dealing with the reunification of children and families and so forth. So um, go ahead. I'm sorry? Yes. But you know there's also data and there's also a push to have women to go into some of the non-traditional fields. So the same fields, you know, rather than being a waitress or something like that, going into an apprenticeship program. I know that there, there's a push for that for even women without, um, who, who, who have not been offenders, but um, to, to take a different look at these non-traditional fields so that they can do well. But again, there's definitely issues in terms of substance abuse frequently and issues of, of childcare and so forth. But go ahead. I'm we sorry? Don't, we don't really have that problem. Uh, actually, I wish more women would get into the industry. It would lend a sense of calmness that we need out there on the street. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, it, it would help a great deal. Um, one of the things that maybe kept women from getting into our business is the fear of getting hurt. But the one thing we do now is we do have cameras in the cabs that anyone who gets in a cab today is on camera, and it's cut our crime rate down to less than 1%. So as far as bringing women, and I think it would just really help us a great deal because I, I, I no offense to my own gender, but it, more responsibility seems to come with it, particularly because there are, there, most of the time there is a family background somewhere. And if it's a lesson I've learned in that women's responsibility to their children is Generally, I'm, I hope I'm not offending someone on my own men, but, but uh, women just seem to take that responsibility more seriously. But again, this, this certainly is a topic in terms of gender-specific things that warrants uh, further discussion. Uh, one of the things that has been um, difficult for me, I'm, I've been looking a lot at disproportionate minority contact, and a lot of the focus is on African-American males because they are the bulk, but we still see this growing number of women in the system, and they're frequently they are not looked at because their numbers are so much smaller than the men. So this is definitely something that warrants further discussion. Um, but I am going to go ahead and move on. We have about five more minutes for questions. Bob Williams of the Department of Rehabilitation asks, what has been your experience or advice on dealing with on-live application, which asks, mm -hmm. quote, have you been convicted of a felony? End quotes. How do you get beyond on live? Yeah. You know, uh, that is a good question. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I found about the online system is that, uh, you know, the, the, computer, the computer is a great thing. It, it really is. Uh, the computer technology is outstanding. However, uh, it doesn't have any feelings. It, it, you know, it doesn't. It, you only, it doesn't recognize certain things, so it'd be wanting you to give an answer to that question. Uh, I found uh, putting, in the, putting in that question, uh, willing to discuss an interview is something that's substantial for that question, uh, allows you to move on to the next question, and also uh, when you get that interview opportunity, you, you really do need to address uh, the question that you said you're willing to discuss at the interview. Do you think having a previous work history 
helps with that? Will that help you go to the next question, or are you just automatically kicked out frequently? Uh, no, actually, I, I just, just last week um, I was working with an individual who has no work history, and I was doing a, a UPS online thing for him. Uh, actually, uh, he had no work history to put in there, uh, so I submitted no work history. You just need to uh, fill in what information that needs to be filled in, and then go down to the bottom, I think it's to the right-hand side, and click that continue button, and it should let you proceed to the next page. Okay. Um, I was just signaled that we will have a question and answers and, until 2.55, so we have more time. So we can go ahead and continue. So everyone's happy about that, right? <laughs> okay, let's go to the next question. Milton Johnson would like to know, how can I get into group home, the group home field having a record? Did you, I didn't hear you. Can you repeat Milton that? Milton Johnson would like to know, how can I get into the group home field having a record? Uh, let, me, let me just share something. Um, all depending on what kind of conviction you have, or certain jobs are just not going to be available for you. Uh, particularly when, you, when you, you're talking about a group home setting, uh, there's a very strenuous process with their uh, background check because you're dealing uh, with youth. Uh, make no mistake about it, they are at-risk teens, but they're still youth. Uh, so they're very strenuous on, on their hiring process and who they allow an opportunity to work for group homes. Um, again, that's definitely uh, conviction-related when you talk about that particular work field and you want to get involved in that. Um, I want to ask a question to Mr. Corbin. You said that you started as an apprentice. So what's the feasibility of going into these apprenticeship programs with having a record? Um, again, I think the trades tend to be a little more forgiving um, because basically you don't really have to have a whole lot of contact with people. Uh, especially if you're in the union setting, you just basically, uh, whatever it is that, that you've been assigned to do, you do that all day, every day, for probably about six months before they ask you to do something else. So it's not a very personable uh, industry in that regard. So I, don't, I think it's a little more forgiving. Is that a testing process? So do they need to take a test before they, because again, we're talking about kind of going into some of the non-traditional fields also. Um, do they need to take an examination or? There's a high school equivalency or a high school diploma or equivalency required, uh, remedial math. Depending on the trade, um, electrical and plumbing tend to have a little more uh, math and more higher math skills requirements than uh, carpentry tends to have just basic uh, arithmetic and maybe fractional and some geometry. And you said about 25% of your workforce are formerly incarcerated? Yes. So obviously there are some people who are making that transition and doing Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Like I said, um, to deal with, with ex-offenders and, and ex-hustlers and ex-people you know people of, of ill repute, so to speak, are, in my opinion, um, some of the most honest people that you're really going to run into. And, you know, they're some of the most devoted people. And if, if given a chance... These people want to show you what they can do, what they can do, and, you know, it ends up being some of the most loyal people, you know, and some of the most, you know, fruitful employees that you're, you're really going to find because they have a chip on their shoulder and they need to prove to the world 
that they are viable. Okay, thank you. Um, can we go to the next question? Yes. Uh, Maggie from Grace Center has a two-part question directed to the Juan Redwood, and she asks, Mr. Redwood, I was wondering in what way in an interview do I explain a gap or a lapse in my resume due to my chemical dependency? That second part is, also, if my felony has been expunged, do I need to bring that up? Okay, I guess we'll start with the first part of the question first, um, the gaps in the resumes. You know, one of the, one of the things about having gaps in your employment is that um, when the time comes for employment, because you can always get a resume that, that's looked at as a functional resume that definitely uh, fills in the gaps in your employment. Um, but when it comes time to get in that interview and you're talking with the employer, that's when uh, you need to be explaining your kind of your rehabilitative uh, methods to come into where you are during that gap, what you've been doing uh, to better yourself, whether that's been uh, workshops or or schooling or uh, anything that's considered to be positive in, in your eyes, uh, you would want to share with the employer to, uh, to have the employer give, in, give the employer insight on what's, what's been kind of taking place with you during that time. Second part question. Can you repeat the second sure. part? The second question? part is also if my felony has been expunged, do I need to bring that up? Preferably, uh, if your felony has been expunged, um, you, you can definitely let the employee know that it's been expunged. That's not, that's not a part of your record. It's going to say expunged on your record. Uh, if they did a background check, then it would say expunged, and, and from that point, um, you, can, you can always indicate that what, what, uh, what endeavors you had in the past has been expunged. Um, we have a lot of questions directed at you. Do you oh, have no, contact? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, hopefully you have contact information available? I uh, do, actually. Uh, the Northern California Service League, we're located at 40 Boardman Place. Uh, our phone number there is 415-863-2323. And I also just want uh, the audience to know that uh, we do these 40-hour workshops that I was talking about. We do them twice a month. I'm the primary facilitator of that class, so know if you send a client there, they will be working with me. And uh, if you do have any additional questions that would cover or carry on further than where we are now, please give me a call. I would love to answer any questions that you may have that's pertaining to getting an ex-offender employment, because that's what this is about. Okay, thank you. Okay, next question, please. The next question is also for Mr. Dwayne Redwood, or anyone else who would like to answer. It's a two-part question. Since, Two, the, two since at least 2,000, approximately 90,000 parolees have been revoked or reincarcerated, often for technical violations, in other words, non-criminal offenses. Question part one, how do you deal with a parolee who has been reincarcerated pending parole revocation proceedings? Part two, are you able to assist the parolees such that he or she does not lose his or her job during that parole hold? Okay, that's the first, could just the first part again, please. How do you deal with a parolee who has been reincarcerated pending parole revocation proceedings? Well, if the parolee is incarcerated at the time pending whatever outcome of their violation, uh, particularly right now, I have a lot of parolees that stay in contact with me through mail. 
uh, generally letters uh, indicating when they're getting ready to come home, uh, what's the status of their situation at that time. Um, once, the, once the parolee is released uh, back to the community, uh, if we've been in contact with each other, then I'm, I'm normally uh, probably about the top three people that that person would see upon their release. Uh, when they're released and they, they do return, uh, the client is then reassessed, uh, and we get right back into uh, the client uh, where we left off. However, I, I do not require a client to go back through uh, any additional uh, training as far as the employment setting. We just further evaluate the client on what took place for them to uh, be reincarcerated. Was it an act of them uh, being around someone that they wasn't supposed to, or was it a direct contact uh, with the police that caused that? You, you kind of want to see what's, what, what the setback was and, and how we can better push forward past that. The second part to the question was, are you able to assist the parolee such that he or she does not lose his or her job during the parole hold? Am I able to assist the parolee if they don't lose their job? Is that the question? So, so I think so that they do not let, let me say, I think what they're saying and, and let me just start by saying I think um, some of the more technical questions you may want to wait on those because we're asking him very specific things. But I think what they're asking is if a person is being hailed, will you contact the employer or something to say that this person is being hailed for a technical violation, you know, so that they don't lose their job? And I don't know if that's what your agency does or if that's um. I'm, that's not uh, something that my agency uh, do unless, it's, unless the um, client requires that. But let me just share something with you. Uh, me being a formerly incarcerated individual, whatever I can do for an individual to help them keep their job, you can consider that done. That's just it. Um, I, I do want to ask, since we've had so many questions directed <laughs> at our resident expert here, that can you go through and, and get a couple of questions so that we can spread this out just a bit, please? Well, this is my last question. Okay. Unless anybody on this side has one more. Okay. Um, so this question is from Jackie Johnson of Israel of God Ministry, and this question is, I had to paraphrase it a little bit, so hopefully I'm answering your question. It's hard to read a little bit. So um, in what way does an inmate's release affect the family perspective and family values when he or she returns home? I'm sure many people on the panel <laughs> That's a broad question. Can you, can you read it again, please? Yeah, I'm going to try again. Okay, in what way does an inmate's release affect the family perspective and family values when he or she returns home. So you're saying what effect does an inmate's release have on their fa his or her family when take they come on, home? I, that's what I think it's saying. Yeah. Take a toll on the whole family what? perspective. Um, I guess I can say something yeah, about that. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I guess every time I came home, it put my mother in the position of, you know, being very apprehensive. You know, is this fool going to do right this time? Um, you know, what is he going to do now? I know he's going to go back to that stuff. Um, same with my sister and my brothers. Um, so I'm sure it has an effect emotionally, at, at the very least, on the entire family unit. Um, I was in and out of that system 
for a lot of years, and um, I ne my mom never came to visit me, never sent me any wham whams and zoom zoom money, and I just thought for sure that you know she turned her back on me. Every time I got out, she was there for me. And uh, upon her death, I went through her stuff, and she had written letters to every judge, every lawyer, everybody, just telling them to please spare me. So it affects the family, whether you realize it or not. It deeply affects everyone. Oh, and just a co-tell on that. Yeah, um, it is, it's very important, not just that I'm back in my daughter's life, but when I'm on the right track <clears throat> and I'm not out there selling drugs, causing harm to other people, contaminating society and doing harm to myself, I'm also doing harm to my family as well. But when I'm, when I'm put back in place and I'm in sync with the, the universe by doing right, by working, being a taxpayer instead of a tax burden and doing the right things, I also become, and once I get st stable in my mind, I also become a good, not only a good parent, but a good brother. I plug in and be a good um, uncle. I'm a good, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you know. So it's, it's, it's very, very, very important that a person gets back in alignment, you know, with what we intended to be. And if I could just say, uh, I think uh, Darnell just made a valid point using his, his daughter and um, the impact that has and the connection. I think uh, it's definitely a positive impact to have anybody back in a home that has been away from the home due to incarceration. Uh, I think there's definitely uh, a positive energy that comes back uh, with that. Um, you know, me going to uh, prison and then coming back uh, several years later, it was a very, uh, it was a moment for me. I, I couldn't really even say too much when I got in the house. I just kind of wanted to look at everybody that I hadn't seen. So I know that there's a very uh, positive impact on that. You know, right now I have a, my, my younger brother is currently in the federal system. He should be getting out in some months from now. And the same impact is going to be uh, when he come home after doing seven years. So it's definitely a positive thing to have uh, the complete family in the household. And those, and if you have, if you have an opportunity to be a part of your family and you come from an incarceration standpoint, please look at that. Thank you. Um, we have time for maybe one more question, or are we done? With the I question? have no questions on this. Okay. I have no questions either. Okay. All right. So I think that will wrap up this session. And so, again, thank you for to our panel. We're going to go ahead and go. So thank you again. Hey, everybody. My name is Jessica Flintoft. I'm the program coordinator of the Safe Communities Reentry Council. And uh, thank you. Thank you all for being here. Part of my job during the course of the year is to put on this reentry summit, so it's been a pleasure to have you here today. And we've got a couple more things, and we're going to wrap up soon. I just want to um, take a moment to express 
the deep gratitude to all the people, financial sponsors and others who made today not only possible, but hopefully uh, very fruitful for you and successful. Um, first of all, our financial sponsors. Uh, we have a major financial sponsor of the California Endowment. I'd like to give them a round of applause for supporting this event. Also have financial contributions from Peter Goodman, James DeSoto, Frank Redesno, Rosenbean and Gelvin, and Swanson, McNamara, and Haller. That made the lunch possible and the materials possible today. So thank you. And equally as important are the in-kind donations of time and goods that um, we've received for this event. We had Pete's Coffee and Tea donate coffee throughout the day for all of the attendees. And most remarkably, um, and this is kind of hard to believe because of the depth of the generosity, but this entire space and the professional crew of Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, the whole day in this beautiful state-of-the-art facility has been donated to the third annual reentry summit. So thank you, Yerba Buena. And last, I just want to thank all the speakers, entertainers, panelists, moderators, um, and everybody who's volunteered. I've learned which ones of you can take photos, can lift heavy boxes, can uh, do all sorts of things. So thank you. There's over 50 individuals who have helped volunteer. I'd like to thank our volunteer stage manager, Kevin Jefferson, who's been bringing people on and off stage with Grace all day. And also SFGovTV, who's been filming this all day. And this will be available DVD and also on government television multiple times. So thank you all so much. I want to welcome Public Defender Adachi to the stage for a few final remarks. And he'll be followed um, with some words of hope by spoken word artist Brianni Davis. Thank you. Thank you very much. I know it's been a, a long day, but um, and I appreciate everybody hanging in there. Uh, we had we started off with a very, very ambitious agenda, and it was agenda again not to just educate and inform, but to really create a plan uh, to work from. And along those lines, the Safe Communities Reentry Council has spent uh, the good part of last year developing a strategic plan because, as they say, you need to know where you're going before you get there. And so we as a community in San Francisco, in order to achieve what we hope to accomplish in the next 12 months, need really the support of the community. And that was a big part of the summit. And so in order to stay involved, please go to our website at www.sfreentry. Com. And there you will find information about our meetings. This uh, Reentry Council uh, will be meeting at least once a month on a regular basis. You can join committees and become involved in the specific programs and projects and initiatives uh, that will follow. We talked about so many things today and, you know, how do we sum it up and how do we move forward? We talked about change. And change comes in a number of ways. And I think one of the ways we have to look at changing is, is policy, because we can put a lot of people power uh, into the day-to-day -day work. But unless we change some of the laws, some of the policies uh, that in many ways make it more difficult, that create additional barriers that don't need to be there for individuals who are recent, recently released from jail or prison, 
uh, that is something that we need to advocate for. And to that end, we have developed a series of policies uh, that we are going to be asking our state legislators uh, to be enacting on. We have a number of things that are happening in the next few months that I think uh, are promising, although we've heard that word many, many times before. The uh, federal, federal government is moving forward on the Second Chance Act. You may have heard that it was signed uh, by the president but not funded. And so that's a federal initiative that would provide reentry funding uh, from the federal government if it's not broke by then. And I, I think that what we need to make sure is that uh, whoever is president uh, in uh, a few months, that they continue to look at reentry as an essential and integral part of federal policy. On the state level, there's, again, so much that needs to be done. Uh, I was very pleased that the California Department of Corrections was here. Uh, often you have these summits, but you don't have the people who have the power to make change. And that's why it was so important that we brought in the change makers. And we may disagree, like Joey said. We may have different perspectives, but at the end of the day, you know, we may not want to be each other's best buddy. But it doesn't mean that we can't work together and that we can't create change together and define our common goals, our beliefs, and those things that should hold us together. And in that regard, we must partner. We must partner with the state corrections. Right? I mean, some people believe that there shouldn't be jails or shouldn't be prisons at all. That's not the reality now. And starting from a place of reality, unless we partner with the Department of Corrections, unless we begin looking at uh, solutions that are going to support uh, local governments like San Francisco, uh, we're not going to be able to effectuate change, at least not on the level that we're hoping to. Because if we're talking about incremental change, and I hope that's one thing that we learn today, it's just as easy to make a big change than it is to make a small change. Sometimes we're limited because we think that change can only happen in small increments. Why can't we make big changes by asking for big things? And like Dorsey Nunn said, unless we ask, unless we demand what we feel is right and is going to move this forward, we're not going to receive it. There's a reason why the state of California is building more prisons. There is a reason why there are billions and billions of dollars going into crime suppression. And as you'll see on some of the ballot propositions, they promise safety and yet give us more of the same. I think that, again, we have to begin not only asking big, but planning big. And unless we begin looking at scale and the economy of scale, um, you know, we're forever uh, going to be, you know, playing in the margins. And that's why uh, when it comes to funding, when it comes to the kind of resources that we need, we have to begin thinking outside just the people in this room. We have to start thinking, just think outside uh, community-based organizations and faith-based organizations. We have to uh, continue uh, to look beyond uh, what we think is possible and partner with new people who th we might think have absolutely, you know, no connection uh, to what we're doing. But 
Again, it all comes down to being clear on your mission, understanding uh, what you're trying to pitch, and making sure that you make the pitch. And so as we go forward, um, we're not only going to be working on the day-to-day -day work, uh, but also changing policy. Now on the day-to-day -day work, what could be done? Well, there are a myriad of things that people can involve themselves in, whether it's mentoring, whether it's providing counseling and support, whether it's volunteering with one of the community-based organizations that works in prisoner reentry. Um, there is a place for everybody in this thing that we call reentry. And so the first step to that is simply to volunteer. And so the way that you can do that, whether you are an employer who has some jobs available that you would like to give uh, to a formerly incarcerated individual an opportunity, you can contact, again, the reentry council, and we will plug you into a community-based organization that works with uh, formerly incarcerated individuals and helps them uh, obtain job readiness. These are the kinds of resources that can support an employer. We can put you in contact with San Francisco's bonding program. We can put you in contact with the Mayor's Office of Economic and Community Development and Workforce Development. And you know these organizations are set up to work with employers to not only help you do a good thing for a formerly incarcerated individual, but also provide uh, you with a service that will enhance your business and your business model. To those of you who are thinking, what could I possibly offer, what could I do? Just being a mentor, just being a friend to a person who is recently released from jail or prison and perhaps has no family can make a huge difference. You heard about some of the stories here and how people have made a difference in the lives of other people. And this is part of the solution. This is part of what we hope as a city, um, as a nation, uh, to one day work towards and achieve. Because if we want safe communities, we have to be willing to make the commitment to help those who, upon the return from jail or prison, um, have no hope. And we have to turn that around and give them not only the hope but also the support they need ultimately to succeed. Um, I, I would like to uh, particularly thank uh, Jessica Flintoff, who is the program coordinator for the Safe Communities Reentry Council. She's done a wonderful job, and I'd like everybody to give her a big round of applause. And of course, I'd also like to thank all the members of the Safe Communities Reentry Council, all the volunteers in uh, the Public Defender's Office, and all of the uh, people who have made uh, today's event uh, possible. And we look forward to working with everybody in the year ahead. Again, this is only the beginning. And to get us started in the right direction, uh, we have uh, Brianna, who's going to uh, perform a very, very uh, special piece uh, for us uh, to, uh, to con conclude uh, today's event. So let's give a big round of applause for Brianna Davis. How are you guys today? I uh, just wanted to thank you guys for having me first and foremost. I'll be sharing a piece with you that I wrote entitled Amazing. If no one told you you were beautiful today, then let me be the first. 
I know you looked in the mirror this morning and realized your reflection wasn't smiling back at you. Maybe you thought your hair wasn't straight or long enough, your face wasn't clear or light enough, your nose wasn't thin or pointy enough, but if I had been standing there beside you, I would have told you that you are amazing. As women, we're taught to be wary of those who share our gender, cautious of those who try to befriend us for fear that they have ulterior motives. Our jealousy of others is apparent, yet we still try to hide it. Instead of complimenting her on her style and grace, we find ourselves searching intently for her flaws, voicing our displeasure for all to see, hoping, wishing silently that in some ways we were she. Because we're never really content with being we, being us, or I guess I should say being me because I never thought I was good enough. Bought into the hype that I could find pretty in a bottle, sexy in a dress, Thick in a plate of soul food, toned in a gym, always looking for a quick remedy to be more appealing to him, to them, to those who found ways to degrade without ever really trying. Yet, I exuded confidence with every step. Had mouthpiece that couldn't be met and game that consistently let me stay on top. I'd spend hours in a club with a cute outfit on sucking my stomach in. Never sitting down because doing so would make the balls of my feet burn from the stilettos I'd worn hoping to stand out. See, if I wasn't the center of attention, then I was normal. Average at best. Too close for comfort to fitting in with the rest, so I pretended. Said I would fake it till I make it and walked around with a smile. Grinning from ear to ear while refusing to hear my inner voice. The one telling me to slow down, take a step back and retract because I was living life in the past lane. Thinking that casual encounters would allow me to gain notoriety. Well, it worked for him and him and him, so why not me? Why was I so wrong to chase and replace? To go out with her man and then smile in her face. To get high with him and drink until my heart was content, but then hold up that degree I got in three years from UC Berkeley as though that somehow meant I'd made it. When in all honesty, I was just starting out. Trying to find myself when I didn't know I was lost. Heal myself when I didn't know I was ill. Fix myself when I didn't know I was broken. All because someone looked me in my eyes and told me that I was amazing. They said I was beautiful as though it were a matter of fact rather than opinion. But it didn't matter what they thought if I didn't believe it myself. And that opened my eyes. Made me realize that the demise of my greatness would come sooner than I wanted it to if I didn't step it up. See, potential is no more than a word with no actions to back it up. So I took heed. Told myself I had to take the lead in the story that is my life, and that brings me to the here and now, to you. And I am telling you that you are beautiful. No matter what negative things may have been said to you, you are amazing. Capable of creating changes unimaginable to most, you are brilliant placed in positions to find ways to make the world a better place. It doesn't matter what he said, she said, they said, or somehow led you to believe, I'm asking you to believe me. Man needed an even greater being to stand by his side, and that's you. Don't you recognize your greatness? You have the ability to give life, to carry on your strengths, triumphs, and struggles, so stop selling yourself so short. From one young woman to another, I admire you. The courage it takes to get up every day and face a society who hardly used to see you as a human being is commendable. And you deserve recognition, appreciation, and honor. So as a young black woman in training, I challenge you to be you. Stand out when it's unpopular to do so. Speak out against those who have done you harm. 
Reach out and allow yourself to be helped by others. Do your very best to excel in all that you do because you're a woman. And we are born and bred to be ready, willing, and determined. Strong, steadfast, and forthcoming. So demand respect. Command attention. Act as you speak and think and believe me when I tell you as I was told that you are amazing, whether you're sliding down a pole, working a stage, or doing something strange for a little piece of change. Whether you have your AA, your BA, or your MA, whether you're a struggling single mother or unattached and on your own, whether you have the support of your family members or a lost soul in a pack of many, we share a common bond. Now, if you're hearing me, then do this for me. Stand up. Stand up for me. With one toe, draw a line in front of both of your feet. That represents those who doubted you. Take one small step forward. Look down. Guess what? You just crossed the line of defeat. Keep standing. Take a look to your right and your left. We are a force to be reckoned with. And if anyone tells you any differently, just tell them, well, Brianni Davis thinks I'm it. You are amazing.